everyone and welcome to a Yorkshire Gamers Reap Big War Games podcast and episode number 49. And today I am going to be speaking to rules writer extraordinaire and uh, manager of the semi-final team O Group from the recent Yorkshire Gamer World Cup, Dave Brown. So look forward to uh, that uh, chat we're going to be talking all things rules all things big war gaming as you would expect with this particular podcast and uh, the previous episode uh, 48 with peter thompson of pro art brushes if you haven't had a listen to that one give it a go it's a bit different from the normal fare but i have a chat with peter about all things paint brushes and those who have listened to it lots of positive feedback telling me they've learnt loads from listening to the episode and they didn't quite realise how much goes into uh, making paintbrushes. So, uh, like I say, give that one a try. It's uh, all free on uh, Yorkshire Gamer. Uh, We have these episodes available on Podbean, all major podcast hosts, and also on YouTube on the Yorkshire Gamer channel. So if you don't already, give us a follow, give us a like, uh, give us or leave a review wherever you find this podcast. It's uh, it's very welcome. Very If you do, um, it, it raises the profile of the show and gets more people listening. Speaking of which, uh, just before this podcast began, the downloads came to 100,000 downloads for the previous 47 episodes, uh, sorry, 48 episodes in the various formats that it's released. And that's quite, a, I have to say, it's quite a remarkable figure, 100,000. Um, when I set out doing this what, nearly three years ago now, um, a couple of hundred an episode I was looking for, uh, and now we're getting to two and a half, three thousand an episode. So thank you very much out there. Uh, It's all you lovely people who listen to this podcast week, uh, month in, month out. Uh, I can only thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the War Games chat that uh, we have on here. So uh, get yourself ready to sit down, do a bit of painting, um, just relax, or maybe you're out having a a walk or a jog or you're driving to work. Uh, We've got Nearly three hours of chat with Dave Brown, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's an interview. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the interview section of the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. And after last episode's paintbrush geek out, we're going back on familiar territory with a proper old school wargaming show. Today's guest is one of the most popular rules writers today with a vast array of popular sets to his name. He's looking confused now. Um, (laughs) From the fields of Napoleonic warfare to the bockage of World War II Normandy via the American Civil War, my guest has introduced us to new challenges of command and control, expanding our decision-making process during a game. His own group rules reached the semi-finals of the recent Yorkshire Gamer World Cup of Historical War Games rules, whilst two other sets made it into the voting stages, which was the most of any rule writer, which is quite an achievement, I have to say. Um, So it's time to welcome my latest guest on the Yorkshire Gamer podcast and give a big warm welcome to Dave Brown. Hello, Dave. Hello, Ken. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Anytime, mate. I'm uh, I'm glad to have you on board. Um, So... We had a quick chat before we started, and uh, you've done a few of these before, haven't you? 
Yeah, uh, one or two uh, with uh, various uh, other podcasters. So uh, you, you should be getting the kind of third or fourth reiteration. Ah, uh, we we try and get some new questions. We try and get some new questions in on the show if we if we can. Um, but the first thing that we do with everyone is we do what's called the four minute challenge. And uh, that's an opportunity for you to summarise your war game in history in in four minutes, which is at our age. It's not easy. So, <laughs> um, have you had a bit of a prep for this, or are you just going for it? No, nah, we'll just we'll just go for it. I just hope you still haven't got that. Uh, Di uh, Regan's going to come in at the end and we just shut it because he doesn't have no. Me, uh, so he no, can... he just he, he doesn't he doesn't. <laughs> Although I'm sure he'd still tell you, regardless of rank, to shut it. <laughs> but no, um, unfortunately, that sound thing doesn't work anymore, so I have to have a little timer. So All right. When, when I hold that up to the screen, you've got about 15 seconds left. I think that's the best way to do it. Great. So w when you're ready, mate, off you go. Okay, well, I think like uh, many uh, others of our sort of age, I was the Airfix generation, so uh, had collections of uh, Airfix soldiers, be they the yellow Napoleonic types or the um, World War Two types, either in, I think, what was it, 172nd for some and 132nd for the others. Yeah. Um, collectively known as little soldiers and big soldiers um, when you're about that age. Mm. So uh, first started uh, collecting those, uh, lobbed marbles at them like most people did, uh, until uh, I went over to see some friends of mine or school friends that lived at the farm down the road. And they did this odd thing of playing with a ruler and a dice. Oh, technical. So, yeah, so it was my first introduction to wargaming with, with uh, the boys on that farm. And uh, they had things that, you know, if you're standing up, you move six inches, charging eight inches. If you're in the open, you hit a person on four plus, and it's in a bunker, it's on six, whatever. Oh, excellent. So that was my very first introduction to wargaming and then moved on uh, to uh, the next phase was when I saw, I think it was called um, Battleground on um, ITV on a Sunday morning or something. And it had Peter Gilder's Waterloo was on. And that just captivated me at that point. And I thought first time I'd seen soldiers on bases, I thought, based up, what are they all doing on sort of six figures or eight figures on a base? What's all that about? So that led to, uh, I think, which again, in common with many other people, to the uh, Airfix Napoleonic Rules by Bruce Quarry. Yep. So that was my first proper set of rules. That moved on to then to was it his uh, Napoleonic Campaigns in Miniature. Uh, played with those quite uh, extensively, along with Operation Warboard, which was a um, a set of World War Two rules mm -hmm. um, by a chap called, I think it was Gavin Lyle or something who worked for the BBC. So those are the two kind of main uh, rules I played with until we moved to uh, Taunton and I joined the Taunton War Game Society um, where they just played a whole variety of uh, rules, uh, you know, on periods. So WRG 5th, Grand Manor, the Napoleon's Battle Squad leader, uh, with the stalwarts of kind of Don and Jay were down there, busy thrashing me at every game because they knew how to do it and I didn't. <laughs> um, so that that was uh, that was uh, many a good year 
I spent down there with those guys. And uh, then obviously work took me to uh, London where yeah. I moved to, uh, took up a uh, residence in Essex and the nearest club was Loughton Strike Force. Mm -hmm. So I joined Loughton Strike Force and they were a, a, a kind of pretty solid club in their own right, ran their own show that was called Broadsword, I think at the, the, the time. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, so down there as they were, and they put on shows and did lots of stuff. And it was at Loughton, I started to obviously develop some of my, my own rules and the people at Loughton were kind enough to actually play them, which is uh, pretty good <laughs> of them. Yeah. So uh, I did, did that as I slowly developed um, G to B because we were slightly dissatisfied with the other rules that were in existence. Mm. Won't mention any names, but we all know who they are. And then uh, that moved on. Basically, uh, lots of demo games led to Dave Ryan of Caliber Books uh, inviting well, Dave. Us, yeah, inviting us down to I think it was in the Tower of London, a kind of demo of Caliber Books, and we put on a Napoleonic battle using my kind of first brief of uh, General to Brigade. And Dave was kind enough to say, "Look, we're looking for a set of rules. Um, what about these? You, do you want to publish them?" And I, uh, I yeah, it was very good of him because getting published in those days actually was was not particularly easy. So Dave was very, Dave was very kind. Um, we've actually, yeah, we've actually, we've, we've actually gone over already. Oh, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> going on. Um, we'll just tell the audience before uh, we carry on any further that uh, we spent about five minutes trying to talk to each other until I realised that I hadn't plugged my headphones in. <laughs> Basics. Basics. <laughs> Basics. <laughs> anyway, anyway, thank you very much. For that. We'll get oh, we'll get through loads of stuff. There it was just a, a little light-hearted uh, attempt to try to get through a lot of years of uh, walking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first part of the show, as as always, is is more around you as an individual as a war gamer than uh, than the rules writing that we're going to talk about later on. Um, do you have a set up at home that you work with or did you play games at home yeah um i've got it's only a, a relatively modest setup uh it's uh seven foot by five foot mm. uh up in the um in the uh, loft extension which is the only place the uh her imperial majesty will allow war oh, games okay. to go on <laughs> yeah so, so uh which is fine um a vast majority of my games are uh 50 mil so uh, a seven foot by five foot table is, is a good size for that. Mm. And I can play games either with uh, Christopher, my son, or uh, other people who, who uh, wish to venture up. Or And it also enables me to play test loads of scenarios. So by laying it out on a seven by five table, I know I'm probably catering for most size uh, tables or an average table. And if it works on that, it's probably going to work on other tables. Yeah. So do you um, do you generally game at home then, or do you, do you have a club as well that you go to? No, I'm still I'm still with Loughton. So, oh, uh, still there, not been thrown yeah. out. Yeah, no, not yet. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, there's uh, it's been going on. Um, I've been at Loughton since probably about I don't know now, um, 1990, 1991. Yeah, uh, once a week. Obviously now it's a little bit now I'm I'm no longer working yeah it's oh. um it's uh it's easier to get down to um and they put all good games uh, there's a variety of 
uh, games will go on. So it's Napoleonic, ancient, um, fantasy even. Yeah. Uh, and Ooh. what's even worse, you'll like this, naval. Uh, that goes oh, but naval. <laughs> you can have a bit of naval. Um, World War Two, you name it, 40K. Yeah. Uh, stuff. It's not. Uh, it's not a particularly massive club, but it's pretty dedicated to the core of about ten, uh, fifteen people that are are pretty dedicated uh, to it. And there's some very good um, game modelers, etc. In that, that obviously when Loudon put on shows at Salute, put on games at Salute rather, um, there are some pretty good modeling feats that some of these guys can produce. And do you have you found that you are getting new members over time or have you kind of got a hard call that have been there for a long time it uh, it basically fluctuates i think it moves from there was when i first joined there was quite a few and then it gradually declined as people uh, effectively just move away for different jobs don't they they leave get a, get a job somewhere else hmm. etc uh, so it de declined a little bit and then it gets a resurgence as, as you get a, um, a group of new new people all join and then so it basically just keeps rolling over. I think about um, 15 to 20 has been about our standard. But yeah, we've had a couple of people join uh, quite recently. Um, uh, interested in the Good, yeah. Because we seem to we seem to be going through a period where there's gaming within shops, usually fantasy 40k, that sort of thing. And yeah. people are going along there and kind of renting a table. Um, and that seems to be quite popular. There's one just opened here in Pudsey where I live. Um, and I don't know whether they're drawing people away from the from the clubs as yet. I, I think probably a club is a cheaper option, um, but we don't have all shelves full of yeah. spec talks yeah. or whatever they are. Yeah, to <laughs> yeah, no, yeah normally it's a, it's a scout shed or something equivalent uh, like yeah. that. So they're probably not quite as uh, welcoming as walking into a nice store as you say mm. with um, with orcs and tau and space marines <laughs> all shelves, yeah you're right it's probably slightly more it does we've got one um uh in just local down down the road so i think that tends to uh, attract your, your, your younger your, your warhammer type players um they'll go down there whereas i think the slightly uh, people who are working slightly older who want a little bit more to experiment with different rule systems and different genres they'll they'll um touch the toe in the water of actual clubs i think yeah i mean we we entice people in with free tea and coffee and the occasional yeah. biscuit oh. so it sounds like an old people's home really doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> we've got a bar. a bar oh you've got a bar oh brilliant Latin, so you could just wander in, get, get your pint or your shandy or whatever you want, and, and away you go. Excellent. So there are some bonuses. Yeah. yeah. So all the war games clubs out there, you don't need orcs on the on the shelves. You need tea, cake, yeah. biscuits, and beer. And yeah. uh, the older the older generation will come <laughs> and arrive very very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk uh, in detail about. Um, you know, the, the rules that, that, that you're known for are Napoleonic's ACW or World War II. Um, so we'll talk about those periods later on in the show. Do you game outside of those those sort of core periods? Do you do you go forward into the modern era? Do you go back into the spear chucking era? What what do you what do you like outside of those three? Or or do you stick to those? 
No, I'd, I'll um, I'm happy to uh, play anything. Generally, it'll just be the once, and you'll think, why on earth did I play that? I mean, I have played a number of games, uh, yeah, modern, Team Yankee, stuff like yep. that. It, the, uh, the kit I is thought, I thought, what's that all about when I played that? Yeah, it, it leaves me traumatised <laughs> after every game. Right? <laughs> it just think it's got, what's this got to do with anything? But yeah. it's a game system. Yeah, yeah. it's quite fun. Uh, Team Yankee, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Franco-Prussians, Vietnam, anything like that. So if there's a there's a good game on in the space, even uh, fantasy stuff, we did um, uh, kind of, it's uh, almost like a, a board game stroke uh, war game um, of aliens, I think it's called uh, Another Great Day and a Glorious Day in the Core or something, where you're trying to get off the uh, ship uh, pursued by aliens. And all the way down to um, uh, Medieval, Hundred Years' War, uh, and, and ancients. Uh, so yeah, so I'll, I'll, I've even played one or two naval games. Oh, hey up, hey up! Very popular. So, yeah, I know. I've sat there on the deck, ticking off the boxes as my my ship gets raped by <laughs> various other ships. Yeah, there's a there's a clue. Don't let that happen. No, I oh, know. <laughs> you don't you don't you don't want you don't want a third rate fiddling around your ear end is yeah. what they, is what they say apparently savory <laughs> uh yeah somebody said that once i don't know but anyway yeah. they're in prison now um so, <laughs> when obviously you you're a rule writer is there anybody uh as a rule writer that you enjoy playing their games or, or how how do you feel about playing other uh, people's games? Yeah, no, I, uh, I I I don't mind, but the, uh, the it'll always come down to you always analysing. Well, I am. I'm analysing their rules. <laughs> yeah, and comparing and contrasting and thinking why have they done that, why have they done this. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think there are some very good ones out there. You know, uh, Sam Mustafa. Yeah. I think he's he's uh, producing uh, very good rules. Uh, Artie Conliffe. Um, I think again, he's he's produced some uh, interesting rules. They're they're both uh, pretty good rules rule writers. But yeah, I'll, uh, I don't mind it. I'll I'll play anyone uh, play anyone's rules. Uh, but it's always sitting there. I'm thinking I wouldn't do it like that. I'd use yeah. this time. Well, I can't help it. I just, no. <laughs> just which I'm sure you know. Uh, you, all, all people do. Uh, we're war games, aren't we? We're we're yeah. always tinkering, always looking at stuff. And tinkering away, but yeah, I'll I'll, I'll play anything if I, I mm. think it's half decent. Do you um, play board games or take inspiration from board games? Um, yes, uh, we, um, we 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 can play anything from those. Uh, one of the basic ones we we play uh, there is the Ticket to Ride and oh, the classic. Yeah. Yeah, settlers of what's it called? Settlers of Catan. Catan, or something. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all one, all um, all the way up to. I mean, in the in the past, I've played those quite large uh, Eastern Front games. Um, I can't remember what they're called now. Well, Eastern Front. I can't remember who made them. Not SPI, but various other people. Like that kind but, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where it takes you a weekend to set the map out and to set all the counters out. Mm, uh, yeah. And then the cat, <laughs> the cat sneezes on it, and you've got to start again. Yeah, and you, you know, it takes four moves you know, to 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 get anywhere, and you've got to change the railway 
uh, wit and all this sort of stuff for the logistics. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, in the past, I've uh, played those. Well, I think board games are, are a fantastic source of um, design inspiration. You just look at what uh, people come up with in board games, and mm. they are they are very good. And there's always a an element of, of me that's trying to think, well, how can you put that into a war game? Um, you know, how have they done this, and why have they done this, and how do you convert it over? So board games are... Um, offense, especially with the the yeah, cooperative ones, I think you know, pandemic and these other things, they are. Uh, I think some board games are absolutely brilliant. They do seem to have a, a a larger following and a larger financial base behind them. I mean, the production costs on some of them yeah. must be quite expensive. So clearly, they're getting the money back somewhere. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I I think there's um. Uh, we are uh, in the kind of gaming world, isn't it? I think we are a set of kind of individual kind of mono gaming societies. Mm. So you've got war gamers uh, with, you know, with we'll all sit in one area who are the actual with figures. Yeah. Then you've got all game war gamers all sit in another area. Then you've got your <laughs> old players. Then you've got your, you know, games workshop gamers. And they're, they're I think often they're quite siloed. And yes. they, they either are not fully aware of other types of wargaming, or they are, and they, they'll occasionally, there'll be a bit of cross-fertilisation, but not a great deal of it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, some of the games, uh, board games that they are they produce, they must have uh, a significant audience because I think the last one I bought was over £100. Um, 100 pounds. So it was, uh, I think, a mm. board Nemesis for the boy yeah. for Christmas, which the figures... That, that came in, which is a, a kind of an aliens type game. Um, the figures uh, of the aliens in that board game, there was about, I can't remember now, about 30 or 40 figures, and they were utterly fantastic. So you think, well, if you're going to produce that, uh, you know, fantastic figures, fantastic counters, really nice board, and quite elaborate rules, your your uh, audience and the, the commercial you know, background for it has got to be pretty solid if you're going to produce that kind of game. Yeah, it does. It does amaze me. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to talk figures with you like live on air, but to get a war game set of rules out, um, it's not an insignificant investment. Um, and we compare that to these all singing, all dancing, all color, like you say, fantastic bespoke figures, um, printed board, thick card counters. That can't be cheap. No, uh, it, it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not. Uh, really much idea how much it costs but it's going to be expensive mm. i mean it's not only going to be expensive to develop but then you've got to get all the figures and um, you've got yeah. to say you've got all this beautifully uh, produced um card and and uh, cards that go with the game it, it, normally it's got bespoke dice um, yes <laughs> yeah. none of that is cheap um you know even in bulk you know i'm sure it, it must if you're buying it bulk it's it's going to be a, a fair cost to the initial thing, and that's, so I can only assume that there's quite a, a significant board game community out there that are, are buying these products. Yeah, there the, the must be. There must be um, a slight change of tack um, just before um, we go to the Venn diagram of wargaming, um, and um, you, you're known very much for your rules, and um, you've got 
a set of scenario books out as well that we we kind of briefly went over when you were talking about how you prepare those. Um, campaigns. What are your thoughts on campaigns? Kind of outside the the set of your rules. Is that something that you you're into, or how do you feel about them? Yeah, um, we all like the idea of a good we campaign. Do, we do. We do. I, I think <laughs> oh, this will be uh, great, but the I think I can. I've probably only played in about two campaigns that have uh, a been played to a conclusion, yeah, uh, or b didn't just collapse from somebody leaving or the umpire deciding that they've got a new job and it and it, it was off. But they are they are fantastic. If you get a good one, a good campaign running, we had a very good uh, one at Loughton uh, quite a few years back now, where we basically had a a map of Europe divided up into regions with supply centers and you just move from region to region with your army. Yeah. Long as you could feed it, you moved around. And that was brilliant because the you would get the uh, the feedback on scouting reports, etc., uh, from the umpire via email. It was all new and fangled then, so it was fantastic. Oof. Oof. Um, so so um, those uh, are brilliant. And other ones I've played in where it was an ancient campaign where a very clever umpire came out with a kind of world newspaper oh, that he nice. published sort of once yeah. a month. So all your activity, diplomatic and otherwise, was published in the kind of, I can't know what it's called, the kind of like ancient news of the world, included all your kind of sordid court activities. Yeah. That oh, nice, <laughs> nice. So yeah, I think um, campaigns are great, but they're difficult to set up and, and, and they're quite difficult to keep going. Mm. Uh, you've only got to have one or two people drop out, uh, yeah. and that's kind of it. But uh, if you can if you can set up a good one, and, and you've got a very good umpire prepared to put the work in, they are fantastic. It's you need that dedicated person, don't you? That that, that uh, who's probably slightly unhinged. Let's be let's face it. Um, who's got <laughs> way way too much time uh, on the hands yeah. and. Um, yeah, it's it's very hard to keep people interested. We I've I've talked about this a couple of times. We switched um, from that old school style of campaigning a long time ago. Went to link scenarios. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's something that you know the lardies do with their pint size campaigns, and, and it's quite popular. And it just takes out that, although interesting, that mm. massive amount of record keeping yeah. and yeah. time and work that. To keep yeah. it going, yeah, I think yeah, linked or what they call ladder campaigns. I think that was yeah. it was a it was a, a very astute move uh, to go that way because that opens it up to virtually everyone and anyone can get a, a campaign and you just you just uh, go up the ladder uh, as you fight each battle. Yeah, those are those are great. They're not they're not they're they're great for kind of two three player games. Obviously, some you know. I think some people engage in campaigns that have got about ten to twenty people in, and you say they are a different kettle of fish, and yeah. I think pretty rare. Yeah, I think whoever invented that style of campaigning, he's up there with the lad who did sliced bread. He's, yeah. he's <laughs> it's a good effort. I bet he hasn't got. I bet they haven't got any money for it though. I no, bet, of course no, not. won't <laughs> any cash from it. That's no, brilliant no, idea. Yeah. Apart from Games Workshop, nobody makes any money from this. No, I'm rich. He's loaded. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh dear, excellent. Well, the end of this first section, uh, we always like to do the Venn diagram of wargaming. Um, yeah. And that's where we break down the hobby into wargamer, painter, collector, and historian, and mm. um, just see how those four areas fit together. Is one more important to you than the, than the other? How, how do you fit in with our little selection? Um, I'd have to say that Wargamer is a big one, yep. a big circle, and Historian is a equally, probably equally big circle. I, I generally put the two together, isn't it? Because I enjoy uh, historical research. I mean, many moons ago, I did a d degree in history and international relations. So that kind of... Minandi. Yeah. And I managed to wangle it so that my uh, dissertation was on the um, strategy and tactics of army group centre during 1941 to 42. So that there was... You go. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes, right. So um, <laughs> you could have thought that was, that was um, uh, quite fun to write. But I do enjoy that sort of stuff. I enjoy lots of reading of books from you know various publishers various authors and just basically mining them for the one or two fantastic gems that will be in there that will kind of uh, reveal how that aspect of combat worked or or illuminate how the fact that we've got it wrong in wargaming and we do it one way whereas clearly they would have done it another way in a in real life and then obviously equally on the other side of that is is wargaming yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. It's putting all that onto the tabletop, having great games, uh, you know, with with uh, opponents, either be it one opponent or, you know, as a, mm. in a huge game. So those two would be the big ones. And then tacked onto the sides, just overlapping slightly on the sides would be painting and collecting. It would be about equal. So I've got a, you know, a pretty good collection of um, Napoleonics, World War II, smaller collections of kind of ancients and various other bits and bobs. But uh, painting, I paint most of all my 15 uh, millimore AB Napoleonics. I paint yeah. all those myself. Um, whereas World War II, I'll either paint it myself or we've got a, a fantastic speed painter at the, at the oh. club. I don't, know, I don't know how these people do it. They're kind of like geniuses with the paintbrush. And they, yeah. they, they're in in approximately 45 minutes, they painted up an entire army, including shading and various colors. And you think, how, how on earth do you paint like at such speed with such brilliance? <laughs> so, at the moment, I'm getting him to paint all my, I've got some, because uh, I'm experiment dipping the toe in ancients. So I want to get, I've got uh, Romans and Carthaginians that he's oh, yes. produced. For me. Yeah. So I've painted a, a, a lot of the ancients, but uh, he'll do that for me. So, in your Venn diagram, yeah, lots of big war game, big, big historian, and tapped at the two sides again, equal portions mm. will be painter and the collector. So I enjoy, I enjoy still, you know, we all enjoy, I think, collecting and building armies, and I'm quite good painting them. Are I'm you, a, are you a bit of a hoarder, or do you, um, do you sell stuff? Have you still got your, your <laughs> 15 mil? Uh, Akhamid Persians from 1982 or of the of the god no most of them I, I'll, I will get rid of them I'll keep one or two just as a reminder you know yeah. like a general figure from uh, uh, I've still got actually I've still got my Thracian Peltas 
from my very early Mike's Model Army that um, my mate uh, Don at the Taunton War Games Society used to thrash me with his Vikings. Yeah. Um, so I've still got uh, some of those, but most of them I'm quite happy. I'll I'll, I'll sell them on. Um, uh, and and buy the kind of latest the best. With, I mean, most of my Napoleonics, as they're AB, AB are so good. Oh, the, I probably won't sell those on. They're 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 here for good. Yeah, they're absolutely they're absolutely brilliant. Our AB yeah. figures. I was gob when when I first saw them. Uh, I was working. I was doing a bit of work with a, a guy called Steve Royan who had Hallmark figures, um, mm. and he was like the northern distributor for AB figures and did a lot of the molds and stuff. Um, so yeah. I kind of saw those figures when they were coming through and, and first going into the moulds, and it was I was just gobsmacked with them. Battle, Battle Honours had kind of set the mark yeah. upwards um, yeah. just prior to that, and then AB came along, and it was like yeah. So I mean, I, when, when it first started, I had you know kind of fifty mil minifigs, etc. Mm. Then when Battle Honours arrived, I went totally out, sold all the uh, early stuff, went totally to Battle Honours. And then did the same again when AB came along. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll get rid of it, but generally to just to replace it with if there's better figures that are coming out, that's mm. what I'll do. I'll get rid of them for them. I find it hard. Know. I find it hard to believe that there could be a another big leap forward from AB because yeah, the an anatomically is that the correct word? Yeah, it, it yeah. could be. I'm in Yorkshire. Nobody knows. Um, <laughs> it, they look they look realistic uh yeah when i get to and um i mean i don't know is tony barton still around i don't know i've not seen yeah him. he does he's, he's still, still, he's still uh, producing stuff yeah. um, oh brilliant i don't know whether his eyes are still doing 15s though because he did a lot well, of 20 okay. world war ii hasn't he yeah he does both so yeah. and I, I, there are small additions to to the 15 mil range or 18 mil range is still keep uh coming along but i think tony barton along with the perrys and empress i think are all utterly fantastic yeah um, figures we are spoiled we are spoiled for choice yeah. these days yeah. we definitely yeah. are we definitely are certainly um, moved on from the mike's models i first bought uh, yes home. mike's mike's models peter yeah. lamming oh yeah peter yeah <laughs> I, I, some of those i wasn't sure whether they were human or not yeah, well, you have to paint on it all the detail. So it's, it was basically just like a kind of like a basic dolly with a musket. Yeah. <laughs> but back in the day, you thought they were brilliant because there was nothing yeah, else. Yeah, I, remember, mm. I, I had a friend who had um, a 15 mil Crimean setup, all with lamin figures. And yeah. I mean, I didn't know that you know, 10 or 12, I knew about the Charge of the Light Brigade and that was about it. So it was just amazing to see this big collection of Crimean figures. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, now you're just going, is that, is that human? <laughs> we, we blame fantasy here. Have we got some shapeshifters or something? Anyway, they were, they were, they were great for the time. They were great for the time. Um, so just finishing this section off then, do you do any social media, Dave? Do you do Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing? Well, I'm on it, yeah, because I have to. Um, there's all the various uh, Facebooks for the various rules, so I'll um, go on those. Um, you know, just basically answering questions, isn't it? About yeah, um, you, you've written a rule. There'll, there'll be questions about scenarios, questions about rules, which I'll answer. Uh, update stuff. I always meant to, 
every time I go to a war game, I say, right, what I'll do is I'll get the phone out, I'll take some photographs, and then I'll upload it onto either Facebook or I do have a Twitter account, but I'm pretty, uh, that's fairly inactive on that. But I say to myself, right, I'll put them up. Yeah. And I get to the club, by the time you've started chatting, put all the figures on the table, I've totally forgotten about it, finish the game, and then you think, oh, I should have taken some pictures of that then i could have put them up so i've never i've got to say dave you're not the only one um i <laughs> do that all the time i've i've set up this big game at a show and then um you start to do a couple of moves and then people start coming in and you start chatting and you have a brew yeah. and you have your lunch and then and then you pack it all the way and you go oh the photographs of this are going to be brilliant and then you think oh shit i'm taking any you just get so engrossed in the game yeah that it just goes straight out the window you yeah. need i need to have a little photographer person there that that hovers around and, and takes it all for me we'll go we'll go 50 50 with it with with his cost yes. mate me and you then at least we'll have some photographs of our game yes. although yeah. i did do i did um fiasco at the weekend uh and did a big oh, yeah. a, a big awi game and yeah. um i did remember to take some photographs at lunchtime so i've got <laughs> like a start lunchtime <laughs> and then nothing at the end well yeah so i mean i generally I think at the start, if I'm lucky, if I ever do remember to get a, uh, a shot of the game, it's always, it, I might take one at the start. But thereafter, once it starts, once it kicks off, yeah. I've had it. <laughs> I've never got the time. I haven't got the time to go around the show, let alone get people out of the way and take a few photographs and reorganise figures. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're, we're not there to be stopped, <laughs> are we, at the end of the day? That's my excuse anyway. Either that or my brain's going because I'm getting old. One or the other. One or the other. <laughs> right, well, we'll take a quick break for the audience there and then we'll come back in a second with our big game chat. Well, it's uh, the second section and regular listeners will know that it's our big game chat. And uh, regardless of what our guest does or thinks about big games they're going to bloody talk about it because it's my show and that's what it's all about big games so first question for everyone dave what does a big game mean to you um a, a big game uh, for me is those uh, games in the style of the uh, war games holiday center um oh, yes for me that's the um the, my uh, the epitome of my sort of gaming i want uh a table that's about I don't know, 30 feet 30 feet long six feet yes. wide with more tables uh on, on the edges uh to get all the reinforcements on um uh players uh sort of anything from five or six right up to 20 odd uh players with um numerous units each person having a, i don't know whatever a division a core whatever you want to call it per side and they would normally come with a with a, a briefing uh, in the morning or in the evening. Oh, yes, um, briefings. A, a, yes, a bit of planning, uh, a bit of uh, an analysis of the terrain. Uh, you know, get terrain briefing, all that um, positions. People, people know where they're going, and they're all up for the plan. And then you start playing the next day, and the plan goes to pieces before you've even started. Uh, you know, it's all that. That's what it is. So I want to be able to look across a table and get that panoramic view 
mm. of hundreds or whatever uh, thousands uh, of figures on a table that looks uh, absolutely fantastic with the interaction of uh, lots of players, the inevitable friction that you get that's in rules and then is brought about by the players themselves. You know, some yeah. you'll find that some people come out as tactical geniuses. Other people are just buffoons, even though they're <laughs> the nicest people in the world. You think, what on earth are you doing? Um, <laughs> uh, and then you have lots of in interactions across that. Uh, a great game, flanks crumbling, you know, centres broken, reserves fed in, cavalry, mass cavalry charges going in. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and then generally in these sorts of games, there'll be a, a, a pretty cool evening social as well, where one can drink beer, uh, discuss wargaming, history, rules, how good rules are, how bad rules are, etc. And then you do it all again the next day if you're lucky enough to be having a weekend game. Uh, a slightly more subdued atmosphere normally because of yes. the, the number of pints that were um, consumed on the night before. But that's it. That's uh, my uh, my big game. Oh, that's 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 perfectly fits with my definition, Dave. So you you've uh, you're doing well on this show. I have to say, I have to say. Mm. Um, you mentioned a couple of things there that. Um, got me rubbing my knees uh, <laughs> and that was uh tables on the edges tables for reinforcements yeah oh yeah. that's magic that is you, you're kind of looking around the looking around the, this massive room and you've got the, the table that you're playing on and then mm. there's tables behind them where all the re reserves are set up yeah i've got we're um we're, that's what the i think war games holiday center has uh, a similar setup like that. So you've got your six foot main table and then two um, additional tables that run along the side. And I'm quite uh, fortunate to have been invited to a few games that are played down in Newbury where the setup is similar, but it basically yes. has, it has a six foot wide by, I think it's 36 foot long first table. Nice. It's Then it's duplicated again in the middle. And then there's the reserves table at the end that's 36 by four feet or three feet or something. And those games are, are fantastic because you, yeah. you will, you just get that. You've no idea what is happening over on the far left flank. No idea. You don't really care either, quite frankly. As long as yeah. Not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, they are, they bring a, a completely different um, aspect to, uh, to gaming when you get a, a huge, uh, table yeah it does it does um it kind of takes away the fog of war a little bit because you can see where things are but yeah. i've you know if i've spent in some cases with some of my collections 40 years building a collection <laughs> i don't want it sat in a box under the table acting like for fog of war i want it on show somewhere um i'd rather see it i'd rather see it yeah i think there's a there's two aspects in some games isn't it or some uh, setups they would use tiles or something so there's nothing on the board when you you come in but for me that loses although it's mm. probably more accurate it loses the wow factor because you yeah. want to come into to a game and that you want to be introduced to that wow factor you want to see thousands of troops on a table all the heavy cavalry lined up in the rear oh, and yes. yeah and 
And for me, the fog of war is created by the fact that you haven't a clue what's going on anywhere else apart from your sector. You're being engrossed in that game. Stick your head up after three hours and realise that your right flank crumbled about an hour ago. You didn't even notice. Yeah. So yeah. So there's um there's swings around about there. Yeah. The you kind of you kind of hear the cheers at the end of the table or the groans <laughs> and you're kind of wondering what's going on down there. I've got no idea. <laughs> you, start, you, you come across and you just think, oh, what's Nay doing? What's Nay doing? <laughs> um do you do you tend to game um in those games with the same people? Um you know, do you get do you get to the point where where I am personally, where I tend to game with the same people, so we kind of know what style of player they are. Mm. Uh, so you might have somebody who's always very defensive, so you kind of know that they're not going to go outside of their area of control. Um, do, do you go through that as well with the people you game with? Yeah, well, we, it tends to be a, a small core of people that you, you know well. And yeah. so, you know, you kind of all go up together. But in the larger games, then there'll be the, uh, the this extra outer layer of people you've either not met or you've mm. you've played with occasionally and you're not fully um, aware of it. I think you, one of your guests was um, uh, Rowan, which I met at uh, one of the newer games. Yeah. You know, absolutely, you know, a perfect gentleman war game, a really good, really good bloke. Uh, and, you know, I've never, I've never met him before, but we had a great game. Um, so yes, there's the inner core of people that you know, that we tend to go up with. And I'll, you know, you think, right, there's, you know, there's whoever it is, whatever. And you go, I know he's an infantry commander. He's never yeah. to be trusted with cavalry. So you yes. just don't give him cavalry. Whereas <laughs> there are other players where you just think, uh, yeah, your cavalry, all you're going to do is charge from turn one, regardless yeah. of what's in front of you. So, yeah, we'll give you some cavalry, etc. Obviously, you, you wouldn't let them anywhere near the Imperial Guard because they'd ruin it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas the other uh, players, that's just, um, you know, it's potluck, isn't it? You, you don't know what they like, and that's good. That, that's, again, that's another aspect of command and control that you've got to try and manage. Mm. I, um, yeah, I, I I really enjoy that aspect yeah. of it. The you know when you when you're on a smaller scale game, you have to kind of artificially bring in friction, especially yeah. if it's a one versus one. Um, yeah. But when you play in those big games, the friction comes from the players. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think there should be a bit element of friction down at the kind of uh, you know uh, divisional brigade level, but there's also that much higher friction at the command top command level where you've said you were supposed to be holding on the left flank why have you sent in all your reserves and it's only half past 12 on day one you were supposed yeah. to hold you know? yeah <laughs> or the the other as usual you were supposed to be the get up quick fast attack to pin them down it's now half four on day one and you appear to have only advanced with one battalion. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's great. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that brings um, uh, a realism in a, big, yeah. in, a, in a bigger game to um, rather than artificially removing control away from things, you are yeah. introducing... Uh, player control uh, that you have, yeah. you know, apart from berating them in the bar <laughs> later on, <laughs> there's just nothing you can do. No, that's right. Yeah, it is. It, it, 
it's very good. It is you do get your um, your kind of your Bernadots and Grushies and hesitant generals will come out, and yeah, despite whatever you know whatever you've said before at the briefing, it's an irrelevant. They will play in their style, and you've you've, you've just got to accept it and you try and manage the battle to cater for the fact that your supposedly your all-out uh, assault is now grinding forward at snail's pace. You might need to change the plan a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And um, is that your favourite type of game or do you enjoy the smaller 7x5 games as much? Yeah, no, um, I would say those are... Uh, the larger games are more enjoyable simply because they have more aspects to them. There are more yeah. uh, things to enjoy. But that doesn't take away from your uh, games that uh, you'll play on a club night. It could mm -hmm. be a basic one-on-one -on -one scenario where you could just have, say, four of you uh, playing a scenario, whatever game that will be. If it's, if it's a good game uh, and you've got good people there, you can have a, a, you know, great fun in just a... Uh, say a three a three hour uh, evening wall game. It's, um, yeah. so I'll, I'll I'll play either. I find, and I'm not I'm not generalising here because this is a, this is from years of experience. But I find that there's less, um, not always, but there's less competitiveness in the larger games that I've been yeah. involved in, and it's more of a an experience of the whole thing rather than you know i need to win or i need to get 3.75 points to, <laughs> you know I, I think it's it's more free form yeah i think i, I think you're right because uh, it, the, there's far less in a large game there's far less that's under your control yes and th therefore players just have to accept the way the battle is unfolding they, they can have very little influence upon it mm. uh so they they'll they'll play in a kind of a different style and there'll be a, a, a different look. Whereas, yeah, if you're playing on a one to one or a two, uh, you know, two against two, you've got much more control over that game and much more control over the outcome. Mm. And also, as we all know, if you're just playing on a one on one game and you lose, you can't blame anyone else. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's down, it's down to you. You've lost. Oh, you can't blame, you know, whoever it was over on the right flank for losing all the cavalry for you. It's down to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, 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 I'm sure we've all had it where we've, we've got off and we've got a really perfectly formed attack. And then the guy next year just rolls double one constantly. So you have to yes. go back and rescue them. <laughs> Yes, that's right. We've all been there. That's right. Yeah. Mm, yeah, no, you, yeah, you've gone up against someone who's rolling nothing but double six, ten, oh, and eleven, time after time, and your entire yeah. attack just crumbles. But yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, frightening, frightening. So, what? What? Uh, can you remember some big games that you've particularly enjoyed? Yeah, the uh, ones that kind of uh, stand out. We did. Uh, a series of games at the National Army Museum in London. Mm. Oh. Uh, yeah, so we were quite lucky uh, to get in uh, and we were placed in their painting room and we set up, a, a I think it was a, something about 24 feet to 30 feet by a six-foot table uh, and we had a series of games there, Waterloo, Salamanca, Talavera, uh, Austerlitz, and that was where one of the, the the first one we did there was a very good one. I, uh, I can remember um, Jerry Elliott or Jed Elliott was down. He was in he was Napoleon, 
Um, yeah, <laughs> fighting, fighting at Waterloo and achieved a stunning victory. Um, oh, well done, was, well done, uh, Jed. Yeah, that was uh, that was a great atmosphere because we were in, in because you're in uh, that environment. It had historical paintings uh, all around us. Um, it was a great atmosphere, etc. Although getting into central London and setting it all up was a, a bit of a pain. Yeah, um, they were good games, and yeah, I mean. Uh, other games, we had one odd large game at, at South Mims Service Station, famous. Uh, wow, war that game. famous wargaming <laughs> venue, South Mims. Because <laughs> we couldn't get, I think it came at the end of the run of all the National Army Museum ones, which um, which I think ended because we, the last National Army Museum game, I think we it must have been a dull day for news reporting. So we had a Sky News reporter down and his oh cameraman. So the Sky cameraman was there in his helmet and his pressed flat jacket, um, yeah. probably, you know, back from Bosnia or somewhere. And he was crouching <laughs> down behind the, the boards, giving some commentary every 10 seconds. And the thing that, that kind of brought it to an end was we were in, because we we're in what's called the painting room, mm. there were um, originals uh, on the walls, quite a long way away from the war games tables. They didn't really, but one was a Gainsborough. Oh right, uh, and it was uh, it was when the over enthusiastic reporter uh, from Sky knocked his cameraman's lamp over Whoa. that then in slow motion headed towards the Gainsborough Whoa. that we all went uh, and we just watched it uh, and fortunately it hit the frame and bounced off and we thought at that point I thought if that had hit that painting yeah we've uh, not ended well so um i thought i can't but you know the, the pressure of not causing damage to infallible <laughs> work yes. uh, <laughs> works of art rather got, got got in the way so hence south mims was a much better option yeah <laughs> yeah and we had a, a double game there um of we had waterloo and the prussian front on, on one game and yorktown which my colleague um uh, mark urban set up at the other and that was a great game simply because of the atmosphere that it was played in i can remember stopping to catch my breath at one point and all you could hear was raucous laughter shouting <laughs> screaming about dice rolls etc etc and i just yeah. thought oh yeah this is um, a fantastic atmosphere to be in uh, yeah so it's really enjoyable yeah, no, I, 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 that's that for me is the enjoyment as well, the enjoyment of interaction, rather than rather than the enjoyment of con competition, which is what some people yeah. uh, prefer, and it's just not my bag. But yeah, that hey, when once you hear everyone laughing and joking, you know yeah. you've got a good game. You've got a good yeah. game. Yeah. Did you used, did you used to go up to the War Games Holiday Centre? Did you ever have a visit up there? Yeah, when um, I went, when uh, was it Mike Ingham and yes, Jed Mike. Were there. Yeah. So I did uh, went up twice. Did Waterloo because I had to do that because I think it was all the guild stuff that was uh, that first got me going. And then we did Vargram. Um, great days. I can remember. It took we we drove up there, had a fantastic couple of days, and then the five hours of driving home was critiquing the rules in the most harsh of fashion as you do um but yeah they were great and then um i think it moved to uh um, when mark free took it over it's down in basingstoke uh, and 
yeah, we've as a group of us, we've been to uh, Beijing Snoke a good number of times now, probably yeah, um, um, 10, 10 times or so down at Beijing Snoke. It was, it was great uh, with Mark's uh, original place. Yeah, Mark, Mark's a great guy. I mean, he's been on the show a couple of times and yeah. uh, great host. Um, and, and has really kept the spirit of the War Games Holiday Centre alive. I think he's done a, he's done a cracking job, bless him. Yeah, don't yeah. don't I... don't tell him though. Don't tell him. <laughs> 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 oh, dear me. Uh, right. Um, so, just a little thing that's come to mind while, you, while we were talking there about the National Army Museum and stuff. Um, the the Lardies have kind of been part of this spreading wargaming into non-wargaming spaces is, is probably a way of describing it. It's happened before, obviously, but uh, they've been to Hartenstein. Uh, and I think that they were there this weekend, or was it the weekend before? And also to the We's, We Have Ways Fest. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a good way or um, of trying to spread the hobby? It's something that we, we've kind of dipped away from, I think, as a, as a hobby in general. It seems to be coming back in vogue. Yeah, no, I th I think it is. Is if if we uh, hark back to what we mentioned before about we're all in these silos. Yeah, um, I remember uh, a, a military history author told me basically that the top selling books uh, for male readers uh, for males in the United Kingdom is science fiction and military history. Yeah, so there's billions of, you know, slight exaggeration of people that are interested in military history in one form or another. But we're all in these silos that rarely meet and rarely overlap. Uh, and I think the the We Have Ways Festival was a perfect place to place a war game because all the people that will go to that will probably have an awareness of wargaming but won't quite understand how it works and how all the pieces come together. Uh, and I think, yeah, that is um, uh, not only is that a, a, a particularly astute step by the two two fat lardies, but that is the way forward. It's to place strategically place very good war games in a, that aren't too complicated, that are easy to get into and understand, but have a historical basis within all these areas. So yeah. that would be museums, festivals, reenactment uh, dues, and all those sort of things. So, yeah, yeah. I, and I think I think the careful choice as well is important of where these are because um, I remember it might even still be going on. There used to be a fest, uh, a war game show that was in like a, a shopping centre, um, and, I, and I can't I can't think that my auntie Doris is going to be that impressed um, yeah. seeing you know war and war games figures, and they're not going to be involved. Whereas if you've already got the people who are going to We Have Ways Fest are already mad keen military historians aren't yeah, they or yeah, interested yeah. in it anyway um so you, you you're already halfway down the 100 meter track yes exactly you've got, they're already half on the hook and they're interested in it they'll ask, they'll ask the appropriate questions rather than coming up and going what's that uh, yeah. they'll know what that is they'll go oh you know that's a you know they'll go i know that's a sherman but how does the sherman work in this game or this environment uh, yeah, as you say, because they're already halfway there, they're already halfway to being a war gamer. Yeah, exactly. Um, what? So, just just going back then for you, what was the thing that got you into big gaming? Then was it the the battleground series, or was it a, a, a game at a show that you saw? How did you get drawn in? 
Yeah, it wasn't. There were virtually living in rural Somerset in my early days. There was no shows. I think there was there was, there was one in Bristol at some point, but that was a long way away. Bristol. Yeah. You know, <laughs> another world. So, another world. Yeah. So pop on my three-speed rally bike, getting up to Bristol <laughs> a little bit much. But uh, it was it was uh, battleground um, watching that um, uh, program, and then try, just trying to emulate that with um, with my friends. And I can remember once in the school summer holidays, we decided um, we were put on a game with every single uh, battalion we had. They're all based up to uh, Bruce Quarry. Oh. And there was about three people at school that did it. Yeah. And we all brought every single battalion we had on a great big table. I think the table's probably only about 12 feet long, but it's huge to us. Um, and that was, that's kind of where it started. It's just trying to recreate what I saw on that um, thing. And then obviously when you go to shows, I think one of the first shows that we went to was... Uh, Ravalli in Bristol, and then some of the other ones, Reading, the Hexagon in Reading. Uh, yes, they, yeah, classic. Uh, yeah, and then you saw, uh, 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 then and uh, then some early salutes, and I'm pretty sure there were, was it the Sods or Sally Oaken District? Yes, Sally Oaken District War Game Society. I'm sure on the show. Things, yeah, uh, that were just massive, um, massive Napoleonic games, um, and there was a. Another chap there was, did Ancients, was it Tucky or something? I can't remember exactly his name, but he had just massive display games that were on at Salute. So all those, you know, influenced me. Brilliant. I just wanted to recreate them. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of the, the, the modern take on it, uh, and one of the reasons I started this podcast was that um, a lot of people I've spoken to are um, put off or find the, the kind of see the hard work that goes into a big game and kind of go, I, I'm not going to do this. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to. Whereas I look at the bigger game and look at the big games that I saw when I was younger and I said, I want to do that. Yeah. And it's going to take me a bit of time. So what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, well, there's this, uh, there's these two kind of, they're not opposing forces, but they are at the, uh, it's about barrier of entry into gaming and there's uh, one side of the coin that says there should be a very low barrier of entry into a game so that's a handful of figures anyone can get to play it and you have a skirmish game or whatever and that's fantastic and the other side of the coin is the coin you've meant is the side you've mentioned where you've got uh, a billion figures each regiment is 40 figures but they look superb yeah um, yeah, and I I don't think the two are uh, one shouldn't exclude the other. No, you get you can get people into wargaming with that low barrier. So when when they want to start, you're not saying sorry, every battalion has to be forty eight figures, uh, and you can't turn up uh, and play a game until you've got sixteen battalions minimum, because that's just not. Good. So if you get them into gaming. With the small stuff as you say i think people do look at it some not everyone but they'll look upon it and think oh yeah i can build up to that um, I, do i want large-scale battalions where each battalion is 36 figures or 40 or do they say well actually i'll go for the slightly smaller units i'll have 18 figures 20 figures which when you've multiplied out and have 50 battalions on the table that still looks uh, pretty impressive but i think it's just being uh, flexible but the two 
I don't think the two uh, are exclusive. I think they kind of overlap a bit. and One could easily lead to the other. Yeah, they do. And I think um, often when you start in the hobby, you don't realise that uh, for most of us, it's a lifetime thing. So <laughs> that, 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 those battalions you painted when the, you were 13 or 14, they're still in this still there, behind yeah. me with, a, with another 9,000 Napoleonic 15 mil figures. So it's, you've got the time. You've got the time to do it. You don't need to have all the 28 mil figures for Leipzig by next Tuesday. Um, no, yeah. There is a, there is a, you know, um, I can't remember. It's this like an expect a, a, a journey to go on. Yeah. What the kids say today, there's a journey yeah. uh, but, to go on to get to the bigger game and enjoy it. It's also the fact that you don't have to paint every single figure to an exquisite standard. Mm. Um, I mean, some people are, I know a fantastic gamer that adopted six mil so he could get into Napoleonics really quickly. Yes, but then he was painting the collar piping on his Napoleonics in six mil. <laughs> Is that not kind of going the wrong way? I mean, you just if yeah. you just if you churn, if you can get producing battalions, just paint, uh, paint them to a reasonable standard. They don't need every button uh, there. You don't necessarily need all the shading. That will come, you know, with the better units once once you once you're ready. But just you can anyone can hopefully paint up a few figures, get a few from the bring and buy, put them together. Yeah, you're already there. I've got to. I've got to admit that um, when I many years ago I painted up some Adler figure, figures, which are six mil, yeah, 10 mil, yeah. Um, twelve mil, um, whatever, whatever the other <laughs> big, big six mil, and I, yeah. I, I, I've still got them up there. I paint. I put earrings in the um, in the Imperial Guard. Now there you go. Yeah. You've slightly overdone it. So, <laughs> Impressive. I, I, I went. I went. You know what? I'm going to stick to 15 mil. So I've still got some up there, but I'd never use them. I might. I might. Uh, yeah, there's a friend who's. There's a friend who's carried on doing um, that scale. So I don't know. He might be interested in having them. But uh, but there yeah. we go. Well, thank you very much for that, Dave. That was a lovely chat about uh, big games. We uh, we we had a good, good old reminisce about tables at the side of big tables and everything which is absolutely fantastic that's what we want to hear so we'll be back in a minute ladies and gentlemen with the features section so here we are uh the um mastermind like serious end of the uh the podcast um and it's our features section uh, so the first thing that we do is the Yorkshire Gamer Quiz. And uh, just for the faint-hearted out there, this is not how good a wargamer you are. This is how Yorkshire Gamer you are. So opinions that are expressed in the next 20 questions uh, may or may not um, upset you. But let's see how we go on. We'll be fine, I'm sure. So, Dave, um, the 20 questions, the short answers, or if you want to have a little chat about them, we can do. And usually one or the other, or a yes or no. And there is a massive regional bias uh, towards Yorkshire in these questions. <laughs> so, are you ready to go? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Question one, go big or go home? You've got to go big. You've got to go big. Uh Contrast paints, are they great or are they a gimmick? Right. If I take the fact I've never used them. Right. <laughs> so I'll go with 
gimmick. He's going with gimmick. Good lad. Good lad. Um, you're getting some paint brushes. Are you going to uh, go all posh and Windsor and Newton, or are you going to go true Yorkshire and buy pro art? Oh, difficult to say. I buy my brushes from any old place. So, um, wow. I've, so I've got. It I, I, doesn't matter. I just I just buy the cheapest brushes generally. So I'll go for uh, what was the first one? Windsor and Newton. Oh, not them. No, they're too not expensive. Pro art. Excellent. Yeah. Good Yorkshire value. Good Yorkshire yeah. value. Um, question four. 96 figures. Is that an army or a unit of pike? Well, I think you know the answer to that one. It's a unit of pike that is missing four figures. <laughs> hey! Oh, dear. Mine are based in eights, so they won't, I can't do 100. I can do 96 or I can do 96 or 104. I can't do 100. Um, a six by four table is that a big game or a small game? It's I would it can it's a it's a small game, but it doesn't necessarily there's no negative connotation attached yes. to that. You can get uh, a great game on a six by four, but that's yeah. uh, to me that's just one of a smaller game. Yeah, I did. Uh, somebody got very upset about that when I started the podcast. Yeah. And uh, what I was trying, what I did say at the time was a six by four, I would say was an average game because that's yeah. what most people game on at a War Games Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down, yeah, down at the club, the average size yeah. is probably yeah. six by four, which is yeah, fine. It's definitely, yeah, it's uh, definitely, as you say, it's not, there's no connotations for better. Yeah. Big does not mean better. Although it is. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's upset someone. Yes. Right, anyway, quick, move on. Uh, right, so um, question six. Um, do you prefer a points-based army or an historical order of battle? Well, considering all my scenarios are historical or vaguely historical, I go with historical order of battle, please. Excellent. Well done. Well done. You're doing very well so far. Very well so far. Uh, question seven. Uh, mixing paint. Do you go for a wet palette or an old bit of MDF? Right. Okay. Um, I normally uh, would just have a, a bit of plastic or whatever. But yeah. uh, full that I was, I bought a wet palette because somebody says oh, they were really good. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, no, they're not. They're no better than, um, than what I had before. So yeah. once the bits of paper have run out, um, mm. the wet palette, I'll just use the um, two outer layers of the wet palette, the plastic top and the plastic bottom will just become the palette because um, the only advantage I, I, I've taken, I'm sure there are many advantages that I've overlooked I'm not aware of, but it kept the paint wet for a little bit longer and then it mm. went runny because there was too much water in the, and then it just went all watery. So I just thought I'm not actually gaining uh, anything from it. Viewers of this, or listeners to this, will very well know my opinions. It's a good way. It's a good way if you leave it long enough to find a cure for COVID. Yeah. Because you get the, <laughs> you get the mold growing. A bit of sponge goes moldy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it will be. Siphon the, 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 that. Siphon that off. Try, yeah. it, try it on a few poorly people and see what it's yours. <laughs> yeah. That's the way forward, I think. Anyway, good lad. Um, undercoating figures, do you go black or white? Um, a fantastic gamer many years ago uh, said to me, he said, just stick all the figures on a base, spray them all black, uh, and anything that you can't get the brush to uh, leave black because you can't see it on the war games table. And that was the best advice I've ever had. So, black. 
Yeah, that's good advice. That, I yeah. like that one. I like that one. Um, second regionally biased question. Um, the uh, question is, you're offered a hot drink. Uh, mm. Do you go for Yorkshire tea or do you go for dirty mucky coffee? Uh, right, depends when. If it's in the morning, it's Yorkshire tea. Uh, yeah. Nothing else. But uh, late morning or in the afternoon, I will accept a coffee as long as it's properly brewed. Right. Um, so I can, uh, just between you and I, I can always remember the, when I was on uh, an early shift, yeah. I would grind the coffee and have it properly ground. And then uh, I would give that out to my immediate, my NCOs. Uh, and the uh, the senior officer would always come down in the morning and go, I can always tell when you're on brown. There's that wonderful smell of coffee wafting through the uh, through the air. And I'll go, I'll take it you want one then. <laughs> so, but tea, first thing in the morning, it has yeah. to be tea because that's refreshing, it cuts through everything and is kind of what you want at that time of the day. So, yeah. a bit of both. A bit of both, a bit of both. Can't be anything wrong with that. Um, War Games units, if it's um, historically accurate, do you like them tightly packed or socially distanced? Uh, oh, my battalion's tightly packed. Please. Tightly packed. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. I hate looking down. I hate looking down a unit of figures and being able to see straight to the back. Yeah, the only time I, I uh, sometimes when there's a gap in it, I'll accept that some people did it brilliantly where they would you'd seen where the the run or the flight of the cannonball had been through the unit. Mm, yeah, and you had a load yeah. of casualties uh, on the deck, and you could it would sort of cut its way through the files. Uh, that would be okay, but basically all the rest of them were still tightly packed. Good. Yeah, like that, like that. Good idea. Uh, so question 11, uh, still doing very well. Uh, would you prefer a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Yeah, it's all, yeah. Although two-hour club games can be fun, can be very enjoyable. Uh, the, uh, the monster game just has that added elements to it. So I'd always prefer one of those. Excellent, excellent. Uh, it's like going slightly off piece with the uh, the Nick Skinner question. Um, <laughs> and this is um, this is avocado. Are they just posh mushy peas? Avocado, right? Okay. So uh, a little bit of history here with avocados. <laughs> it just I worked in East London, didn't I? London. Um, and in the area I worked, which is kind of uh, um, Bethnal Green, Shoreditch, that sort of area. During the late 90s, it was slightly started to have a bit of gentrification. And lots of these little cafes and eateries would pop up. Yeah, You'd go and visit them. you think, oh, yeah, that might be nice. And you'd be yeah. served smashed avocado on rye. Oh. And quite frankly, uh, an avocado, um, not only is it only ripe for approximately 10 seconds, um, it is an utterly tasteless uh, product unless you smother it in lemon juice, salt and pepper, mayonnaise, chili flakes, or anything to actually give it flavor. So although it's, um, it's obviously quite healthy, etc. at the end of the day, it's compared to peas, peas have their own taste. Yes. As avocados need a lot of addition to get them to be tasty. So I'm gonna go for peas, as you Excellent. know. Excellent, that's what, that's what <laughs> we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. The, the death of the avocado is short coming on this on this program uh, and and because uh, when I started this I thought there would be an avocado line around about Northampton 
and everybody north of Nav Northampton would be mushy peas, and everyone south avocado. Um, but that line is getting very, very blurred. Overrated. Very, Overrated. Yeah, I think. In fact, I think Nick Skinner is the only person in the UK who eats avocados. So definitely, do do not do not invest in avocados because it is not a good future for them. No. That's all I can say. Um, question 13 is the universal question, Dave. Everyone, uh, 47 people before you have all uh, given this the same answer. So uh, there's no pressure on you here, mate. Rebel. Rebel. <laughs> um, so uh, this is round dice, spherical dice. Are they allowed or banned on your table? Uh, they are a pointless invention and therefore banned. They're banned. Just... We had a, some chat that a percentile dice, wasn't it? 100. 1 to 100 on a round. It was basically a ball, a complete sphere. You rolled it and it rolled forever, then fell off the end of the table. So, yeah. hopeless. Banned. Banned. That's what we like to see. Um, so, uh, the Dave Marshall from TM Terrain question. Um, this is, when you're going down the chippy, do you prefer haddock or cod? Oh, I have no idea. Um, uh, I probably couldn't even taste a difference. <laughs> so let's go for Haddock. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> um, right. Uh, so, uh, oh, good, good question for you, this one. Question 15. Right. Do you like a good table in a set of rules, like a casualty table or something similar? Um, right. Without um, um, treading on perhaps future ground, I've kept a casualty table in, in General Dame 2 yep. for reasons that I will explain perhaps later or not. Yep. But I've, I have kept them uh, for specific reasons because they're much, they can convey a lot more info. So yep. I prefer a casualty table, a smaller, slimmed down version, but casualty right. table nonetheless. We like tables. Yep. I'm, an, I'm an engineer. I love yeah. them. <laughs> I love them. Give me, give me an armor penetration table that's this big. <laughs> love it, absolutely love it. Uh, question sixteen: um, Twenty-eight Melly's King, yes or no? Uh, it, it is uh, simply because you can paint them to a fantastic standard, and um, on a, in a big game on a big table, they look utterly incredible. Mm. So if you see. Uh, for instance, um, I mean, Mark Freed's collection, in, he's got the those French Carabinier, oh, the yeah. Saxon Guard de Corps. They're all fantastic. There are issues that come with 28 mil figures because of their size. But it, you take that away. that You look at a unit of 28 mil figures, you can't really beat it. Um, they are fantastic. A big unit. And some of those units that Doug Mason's done with all the... Yeah. Yeah, individual figures individually posed yeah. it's just amazing yeah yeah fantastic yeah absolutely amazing uh question 17 um unpainted miniatures allowed on the table yes or no uh only if you are under 10 under 10 yeah that's so it's, it's no uh there's but if you're if you're a young kid or whatever yeah. Yeah, of course you would it's yeah it's not brilliant um, I'm not sure whether you know anything about football, Dave, but um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Bradford City fan. So the question is, where? <laughs> where? Uh, the question is, Bradford City or Dirty Leeds United? Uh, that's a bit of a clue. Uh, my dad supported <laughs> Tranmere Rovers because he was from Birkenhead. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah Mighty Tranmere Rovers, yeah. I remember looking at those as a kid, thinking, oh, I might yeah. support those, and they were in about the fourth division, so I thought I'm not yeah. supporting that one. Um, so, you haven't got any further. Uh, uh, I can't support Leeds, because when I used to play Sabutio with my mate, I was Liverpool, and he was always Leeds. Yeah. Uh, he was the opposition. So yeah. whatever the other one was, what was it? Uh, Bradford. Um, Bradford, never heard of them. The, uh, mighty, the mighty Bantams. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, that's our name. Bite the legs off. Who was it from Leeds that bit everyone's knees off? Norman, Norman Hunter, I think. Uh, yes. Norman, bite your legs, Hunter. Yeah. 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 Lovely, yeah. lovely cultured football team. That was 1970s Leeds United. Yep. Oh, dear oh, me. Yeah. Dear me. In fact, Franny Lee, um, um, one of the players um, who had famously had a massive fight in the middle of a pitch with a Leeds United player, um, <laughs> it, it uh, passed away recently, uh, which was uh, quite sad because it was a it was a right old fist scrap. It was a proper job. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so question nineteen: um, Yorkshire or the other place over the hill? Um, uh, uh, only, uh, obviously. Uh, the north is as often i look upon it is it a barren wasteland it, yes uh, it is. But i know it's not because i've been because the only places i've been on numerous occasions are places like, where's scarborough's that's in yorkshire isn't yeah, it yeah it's in north yorkshire yeah, that. Yeah. so been to scarborough been to east ayton where some of the east ayton mob put on a very good yes, um, yeah. up there that uh, henry and other people have gone obviously been to york so i don't think i've been i don't know where the other place even is Excellent. Um, That's the best no, place. To, best way to keep it that way. <laughs> yes, we've still not forgotten the Wars of the Roses. We're still. <laughs> well, it's better than said walk down in Somerset. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, final question. Final question. Um, and you're on for a very good score, whatever you say for this. Uh, and uh, that is GW Games Workshop. Are they the work of the devil? Yes or mm -hmm. no? Um, my first instinct is to say, yes, they are. <laughs> However, they do serve a very, very useful function, and that is getting, um, especially younger wargamers into the hobby. They're like, so they're a gateway drug, effectively. Um, but the whole business thing is, uh, is has a number of, uh, I think, flaws. Uh, fun to look at it from a kind of altruistic you know, viewpoint, but um, yeah, it, it, it's they are they are the work of the devil, but they have uh, a good aspect to them as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, my my lad does a bit. Um, he's home at the moment from university, and um, by the time he's, he goes away and he comes back at the end of the term, the rules have changed, or yeah, some my... new codex has come out, and I've I've got me yeah. Christopher's uh, the, my son. He's he done that. They're on now the tenth edition or mm. something. And every time they deliberately change the, the who's got the most powerful army. So if it was whatever it was last time, if it was Space Marines last time, it will be Tau or something this time. So everyone has to drop Tau and go and buy the new Mega yeah. Army, and that's yeah. just a deliberate ploy. It is. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit of a cheek. I don't know any other set of rules that's in its 10th edition. No. Well, um, I, I have the um, Tetley bit of Space Marines. Yeah. Uh, 
all all painted up as if they're a can of Tetley Bitter, and um, apparently that's that's not taking it seriously. You'll be back. You won't be allowed in. Yeah. You won't be allowed in as banned. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, well done, Dave. You got a big big round ninety percent there, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. Well done. You are you are more than welcome. I'm not a member of Yorkshire Gamer. Uh, an, an, an excellent <laughs> result. An excellent result. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so the features section's grown a little bit from the quiz, uh, which is where it started. And the, the next section is uh, the Room 101. Um, and if uh, listeners remember George Orwell's Room of Horror from 1984, um, I've turned this into a place where people can put their pet hates from wargaming. And this is a... This is a safe zone. You can say whatever you want. You can have a massive rant on on whatever you've decided to put in. Um, have you got, have you come up with one, Dave? Well, I, I was, and it, yes, I have. And, you have. And be, um, I can only apologise in advance. It might d develop into a bit of a rant, but the I initially thought I was going to put in dodgy dice, which are those odd dice that people turn up with that seem to have had the corners shaven off. And always roll six. Yeah. Or you can't tell what the symbol is. And they pick them up quickly and go, yeah, it was a double six. Um, but uh, I, I put that to one side because I have to cast into room 101. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm going to have to cast into room 101 uh, war games rules that create or encourage unrealistic tactics. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I like that. So, all right, well. it's, it's 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 one of the perhaps one of the reasons why I started writing my own rules is the, <laughs> is, is the fact that uh, for me and it's obviously personal, so yeah, other people will have different opinions. Yeah, hmm. uh, is that war game war gaming should be based on history uh, and not based on someone's uh, idea of uh, you know a, a flank charge. Um, or the things that used to get me were I've got a one figure overlap, so therefore I'm going to get a plus two. Yes. Or, you know, right, I'm hitting you at 22 degrees or 21.5 degrees. We've checked it with the protractor, so that gives me a flank charge. <laughs> Nowhere in any drill book or any history did a general go, uh, or even in Roman times or whatever, go, right, uh, Biggus. Uh, move over to the right because if we can get one figure overlapping on those uh, Greeks, we're going to get a plus four in the melee. You think it just never happened, and and the trouble is we've um, those tactics become cemented into war games thinking, and mm. then they become reality. And then if you go against that and say no, there's no, you know, you shouldn't worry about. Um, such things as uh, if you leap to World War Two, like having trucks and motorcycles roaring across the battlefield, disgorging their troops. I just think, well, why can't I do it in these rules? You know, I played another set of rules where uh, a truck can move 5,000 inches, swerve around the corner, drop all its men off, and then leap off again and be totally unscathed. I thought, well, if you want to be in a four-tonner moving across the modern battlefield, <laughs> I crop her fairly quickly. So it's lots of stuff like that, um, you know, um, without mentioning any rules, over, you know, uh, modern rules that allow you to have Overwatch. Yes. But the Overwatch is advertised to the opposing side with a huge neon sign. 
So you always know exactly which of his <laughs> units are on Overwatch and which are not. So clearly, the opposing Rommel looks across and goes, ah, all those British units are on Overwatch, let's attack on the left instead. Yeah. You know, they've got no bearing in history. That's uh, very so, true, very true. Uh, let's, uh, all that, so not necessarily um, entire sets of rules, but those aspects of mm. rules that encourage their game tactics rather than historical tactics. Let's cast yeah. them into depth. Oh, I like that. I like that. Do you think that this is? Do you think that this is coming from from the sci-fi world where um, units have characteristics um, and special powers or special actions that they can take that aren't based in reality? Because um, I hate to break it out there, but space marines are space marines aren't real. Oh, oh no! There we go. There's thousand complaints, um, but you know, if your or death chopper or whatever can do, uh, yeah, exactly, um, could do certain things. Then when people come across into historical gaming, there is that disconnect between it being something real rather than something that is, um, sorry, kids, made up. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's that's all part of it, isn't it? You, you think, well, I mean, one of the classics was uh, Bruce Quarry's national characteristics in his his rules, where I think the Austrians moved one millimeter slower than the Spanish or or whoever. Thought, yeah, I, I know what you're trying to do, but does one millimeter by the time you've moved the battalion you've lost the millimeter it's just it's just point a pointless exercise but yeah all that adding lots of rules in to make units special that then trying to put that into a historical game um that doesn't work trying to say that um for instance uh, a roman a roman peeler are some sort of super weapon uh, as opposed to just chucking a javelin is the same sort of thing. doesn't matter whether a Gaul threw a javelin at you and it's stuck in your shield or a rope chucked his pee, but they're all the same. So, um, yeah, it's all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And do you think that um, sometimes the, the, the rule mechanisms themselves lead that because it lead into that because it's so easy to just, I'll tell you what, we'll stick a plus one on there and then yeah. it'll make it work. Yeah, so the biggest, biggest thing I thought is that, that that's the easy easy route, isn't it? Is to go, we've got a list of modifiers, but I want to incorporate something else. Uh, let's make, you know, for instance, if you've got machine guns, well, we know the MG42 had a fantastic rate of fire, so we should just give it a plus one. Well, that's not quite how stuff works, but it's easy to do that, isn't it? French columns attacking the Napoleonic Wars, well, they should get a plus one. Because you know they're more elan, a bit of impetus, they get plus one. No, the the, the reverse should be in effect, isn't it? It should be. You know, is is a French column attacking any better than an Austrian one or a Prussian? Yeah, so it's 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 like that. I think, yeah, they the the ease of which tables can add modifiers has that leads you to a slippery slope because you just keep adding more and more and more because it's easy to do that. Yeah, I, I, I've got to, I've got to agree with you. And from a, you know, a, 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 my perspective is that if you're fighting historical games, I think there should be 
some sort of historical basis to it. It's an argument that happens quite often on on the internet, mind you. What don't people argue about on the internet? Um, but there's, there seems to be this oh oh you you just you you gatekeeping trying to keep people away. It's like no no what what we're trying to do is we're trying to recreate some sort of history um yeah. and and so have some sort of historical context to what we're doing rather than just having a game um yeah. and you know i i can i can say it on here because uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm in enough trouble as it is with whatever i say but things like team yankee are quite clearly a game yeah um and great people love it people enjoy it and people get yeah. on with it but you've just got to see the tank parks that move around and think if I'm an artillery uh, commander, I'd, yeah, I mean, uh, as you've mentioned it, um, <laughs> so, so, uh, as you say, Team Yank is great if you want just a game and you get loads of models on the table. Yeah, it's great. Hmm. Um, it has no bearing whatsoever on modern warfare. Yeah, um, it, it, none of it. Yeah, the yeah, I won't go. I won't have a rant about um, <laughs> Team Yankee, but. The fact that you can it hasn't it hasn't even got the neon overwatch and doesn't even allow you to do that it's just it's got yeah it has no bearing mm. more history more history in our war games dave brown says more history in our war games there we go there's yeah. a there's a show title for us i do like that uh, and then the final part of this um little section is the desert island war game and um you've been cast away on a desert island like the radio 2 and yeah. um you get to take any war game that you want any size any number of figures any period anything that you'd like you know the, the game that means the most to you what would you like to take to your desert island yeah I, uh, i've touched on this before i mean the other than one of those mad spi games which <laughs> i wouldn't do because it get blown away in the wind or get yeah. wet yeah, uh, I would take Lock, Stock, and Barrel. I would take Peter Gilder's um, entire Waterloo setup, which I think oh. Mark III has now got. So I'll yeah. take all that Waterloo terrain. I have yeah. all the French army. I have the yeah. Prussians, and I have all the French. Thank you. Oh, all in, brilliant. you know, undercover nicely yeah. on my desert island. If you can oh, drop me, in. fantastic. That keep you going for a few weeks. That yep. most you definitely play that, replay that. Your heart's well, my heart's content. Uh, for years, still got rescued. <laughs> Fantastic. And then uh, second, you can take a book uh, other than the a religious book or the works of Shakespeare, which come along free. Um, mm. Is there a book that you would like to take along to the desert island? Um, if we're uh, obviously military history would uh, would have to be, and I think out of all the the books, there are many, many fantastic books. Mm. But the one book that would keep you going on a desert island would have to be the campaigns of napoleon by chandler. oh chandler yeah yeah and you can just it's got re-readability there you just yeah. keep going i think one of my ambitions when i retire is to read it from cover to cover because I, i've <laughs> always i've always you know we've been putting on a game of whatever denowitz yeah. or some you know napoleon and i've read that section but i don't think i've ever read it all the way through yeah no i think i, I think i did when i was about 17. yeah we were I was doing my A-levels and we had to do the Peninsula War. So I did start, I've, I've read it all the way through. Oh, uh, and I've, I've, uh, it was fantastic. It was a yeah. brilliant book. So, yeah. A very good writer, uh, David Chandler. I yeah, it was say. easy. It was really. easy. It was, yeah. He, he made uh, military history quite accessible. So yeah. it was excellent. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, yeah, because sometimes um, military history books, uh, well, any history books can be extremely dry. A bit dry, yeah. <laughs> it's mm. like a bit dull. By page six, you think it feels like 600. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway. Skimmery, yeah. Yeah. Um, right, and the final thing to take to the desert island is outside of the of the game is you could take a war games unit, something that means something to you, or something you've seen a classic unit, anything that you would like to take. Well, um, I kind of already uh, cheated a little bit here because because I've got Gilder's collection, I've already got twenty eight mil old guard, yeah, French CAs. I've yeah. already got those, so. Uh, it would have to be out of that period. So I'd probably have to go for something like a really nice looking uh, phalanx of Greek hoplites in oh, Corinthian helmets. You know, uh, nice. you know, the sort of serried ranks, all the hoplons out. They look, they look cool. So I do I'll love probably business. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Dave. That was um, a, a lovely chat there. So we're going to move on to the big topic next well welcome back to the uh, the final section of the podcast and uh, obviously we've got dave brown here and we're going to be talking about war games rules we're going to be talking about dave's war games rules we're going to be talking about other war games rules mechanisms all sorts of things anything could come anything could happen in the next half hour i think they said on stingray didn't they um so uh, it might be more than half an hour but anything could happen uh so uh, i suppose dave the first thing to talk about really is is um how you got involved in writing your own sets of rules where where did the spark come from to go you know what i can do better uh i think it started with those very fine set of rules um called grand manor they, were, they produced some great they did look good so we can't not yeah. old good old peter gilder because he's he kicked it off but i do remember distinctly when we played a game i had the 95th rifles and the rules did not permit me to place them in skirmish or open order. Right. And I thought, that's kind of odd. Who <laughs> <laughs> would have thought that the 95th Rifles would be able to do this? Uh, and that was kind of got me thinking, I, I decided that I would rework aspects of, of those rules. And mm -hmm. in the reworking of those rules, I got to the stage, I was reworking so much, I thought I'll just do, this has become another set of rules, which you know, obviously ultimately became uh, General Drill Brigade. But mm. that, that was kind of the trigger. It, it was playing rule sets such as Grand Manor. I mean, there were other rule sets as well that we were, uh, we'd already played. You're thinking, I'm not too sure that this kind of works. Uh, or this fits with my, uh, I don't want to say vision of military history, <laughs> yeah. it's not a vision. It's um, of all the reading you've done. So you can combine your reading of military history and your experience in life from the stuff you've done. I had branches of War Green for a, very, uh, for a, uh, a few years, uh, etc. So you put all that together and you just think, well, that just doesn't appear to be uh, right. I mean, one of the things was about the fact that there was no command and control in some rules about uh, above the battalion. So the battalion could whip off and go wherever it wanted. Yeah. 
And you just think, well, there is a command structure normally in, in a, a military environment. So the idea that you could drag uh, a, you know, a French line battalion out of its brigade structure, send it all the way over to the left flank because it's kind of convenient because the game is developing that way, isn't right you know, or didn't feel uh, right for me uh, and it didn't reflect history. There's going to be a brigadier somewhere pointing and shouting a lot. So if you can imagine the fact that, yeah, Colonel whoever, Smith, says, um, listen, uh, General, I'm just over off to the left because I feel that's the right thing to do, he wouldn't be a colonel for very much longer. No. So um, it, it didn't happen. So it's those uh, sort of things. It was the aspects of rules that I didn't feel reflected history. Um, took me down to uh, decided I'd do it myself. It wasn't a conscious decision. It just evolved uh, as I went along. Did you find that um, you've always been before that a rule tinkerer? Because there are there are lots. I do it. There are lots of us out there. Uh, rule 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 tinkerers. Um, who you know like change a little thing house yeah. rules etc is very very common um whereas other people are very very rigid with sticking with what's written in the rules did you always find that you were a yeah you if, know yes i mean a... i would yeah i mean i i can remember modifying quarry uh rules etc basically i'm putting a two final points on it it's when the rules were wrong or, yeah. obviously in my opinion <laughs> the wrong thing that just doesn't work uh change it uh, I mean, I've played um, a medieval, I can't remember, a hundred years war, um, War of the Roses a game where it ended up with lots and lots of small units running around independently all over the battlefield. Right. Right. Just, it's not, I, I don't recall uh, anything that said every single unit ran ran around on its own. <laughs> the battle line, and most people, most people stayed in it. Yeah. But yeah. So it was tinker, and then okay. Well, write, write your own. If you if you you've got to stick your head over the parapet. Eventually, we can all uh, tinker. But I thought, well, I'll just take it one step further. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the one of the questions I've got coming up. Really, is that um, what was the thing that got you to go from where many of the people who are listening to this podcast will be now in the you know the little house rule here and there to then go you know what I'm gonna <laughs> bloody do one myself uh, how uh, you mentioned a little bit in your four minutes at the start but we, we can go in a little bit more detail here is is what how did you get to that um that first sort of printed copy of, of of rules that you could hold in your hands rather than 27 bits of a 400 that yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. Um, it was basically it's a, a question of right. You you write your set of rules that you think uh, are going to work. Then you just play test them. Yeah. And when you're play testing the rules, at least I I found, is you need to um, listen to the feedback that comes back, and not only listen to the feedback, you've also got to observe the feedback, and you'll find that if if uh, if it's when people frown or just stop because they don't get where it goes, you've got to think, yeah. right, why are they frowning? Why have they just ground to a halt here? It's because they don't. there's a jolt and they don't get it. So 
in the playtesting, you've got to smooth all, all those jolts out. And you've got to accept the fact that you're not always right. And the mechanism that you've done isn't always right. And there's got to be a lot of compromise because you're not addressing the rules just to you. Well, you kind of are. <laughs> you've written a bit. You're addressing the rules to uh, a whole multiplicity of different gamers. Hmm. So you have to, each rule needs to accommodate a whole view of, of from different war gamers. And so that is play test it, play test it, listen, uh, rewrite it. It doesn't need to be massively written. You just got to tweak it so that those people then feel comfortable and they understand where you're coming from. You know, just little tweaks, put it all together, keep reworking it, play it with, deliberately play it with people, uh, gamers that aren't your sort of gamer. So I would go and play it with, um, uh, when I was first doing General Brigade, I would deliberately play it with um, DBM and DBA kind of competition gamers. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you get all the feedback. Now, you probably, I wasn't probably going to alter the rules massively to cater for their, how shall I say, particular nature, but they mm. did give you clues as to where perhaps you could alter stuff. So uh, expose, expose it, break it, reassemble it, put it back together, uh, and then put all the bits and pieces together. And then if you've got somebody who's prepared to publish, like Dave Ryan was, um, with uh, General Brigade, he was looking for a Napoleonic set. And I think I just got to the point where I thought these are actually almost complete. And then obviously, as soon as he says, oh, no, I'll publish those, then there's a bit more incentive to make sure you have got it right. So, yeah. <laughs> go back and think, Christ, have I got all the musket ranges right? It's all this, you yeah. know. Uh, so you go back, do all the double checking, do all the, the bits and bobs. I mean, we can touch on later, but I think there's four aspects to war games rules that you need to touch mm. on. And then you, you put it all together and good old Dave Ryan had the, mm. had the courage to say, well, we'll put this into print. Is there, a, is there a sense of trepidation having gone through all that, that when the final one hits the streets? Um, I mean, it happened um, not that long ago with... Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to get it wrong, so I won't, I won't give the name. But there was a set of rules that came out and it was all wrong. Oh, um, and they had to literally had to reprint it. It was it was so badly wrong. Oh, um, is there a, is there a bit of worry with you that you've missed something or somebody's going to come up with something, yes. no matter how much yeah. you've play tested it? Yeah, there was. It, yes, it is always about um, six months or so before publication. You go through this self doubt aspect. I do. I guess yeah. self doubt. Oh, they're all complete shite. Um, it, well, it's all luck driven. There's no, it's all wrong. Uh, but that is part, that destruction is part of reinforcing that the fact you've got it right. So yeah, you go through, you, you think, yeah, um, it, it's just, it's not, you've already done double checking. Uh, and as it's some RSM said to me once when I gave him a briefing, some something quite important once, he said to me, have you double checked it? And I said, yes, I have. He said, have you treble checked it? And I kind of went, no, sir. And he said, then go away and treble check it. So that's kind of what that phase does. You get that self-doubt that comes in. They're all rubbish. 
the first review will say they're a pile of whatever. And so you go away and you re rehash it, re go over it. Have I got that? Yeah. Maybe tweak something. And then you get, uh, I get, I personally get over that hump. Then it's done. And then just prior to publication, you're fairly confident. Yeah. It's, um, I, I work, you know, with my work, I do quite technical reports. Um, mm. and they're peer reviewed, um, and then verified. So they'll probably get 15, 20 read throughs. Um, mm. and then I will read it and then, It'll go through, it'll be all signed off, and I'll be stood in the witness box, and within 10 seconds, I'll see a mistake. Yep. I think it's just got, it's, it's, uh, you always get that with war games as well. They go, oh, it's, you know, there's a spelling error on page X or yeah. something that's missing. But you've looked at that, as I'm sure you've, you've looked at it a thousand times, and you just kind of, you go almost word blind in a way because you just see what you expect to be there, not what is mm. there. And that's where proofreaders, but even proofreaders still tend to do the same thing. They still miss bits. Do you use the same playtesters for different sets of rules? Um, and, and how, uh, you know, you, you did mention it earlier on, but how do you yeah. take that feedback? Is it, well, hopefully it's mostly constructive, but is, does it make you think about what? Not always. <laughs> not always, no. Um, does it make you think about the mechani mechanisms that are in the rules and, and how they're written? No, generally they're, they're all wrong and I'm right. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, yeah, but yeah, I'm fortunate that in the club, uh, Louter Club, there are a, there's a number of war games that are very different in their outlook as to how they uh, view games. So you've got people that are, are quite historical, you've got people that are just gamers, You've got people that are, uh, I like to refer to as armourers, which are the people that are the button counters in the middle of, you know, it's, well, the panther armour's 30 degrees, uh, 80 centimetres, you know, all those. Yeah. Uh, and they're all good war gamers. So the initial outing for rules will go through uh, playing at the club with those guys for mm. um, a, a good amount of time. And because they're all coming in at different angles, you can go, right, uh, you know, Player Gary doesn't like that bit. Player Simon likes that bit. So again, you're just tweaking because rules have got to, got to go out to a wide audience. You think, yeah. well, Gary didn't like that. There are going to be good, I don't know, whatever, 10%, 20% of war gamers that will all think like, you know, our war gamer Gary. So therefore, it's important that Gary is included in it. So because if, if you just write a set of rules that says, don't care about what you think, uh, tough then you've alienated 10, 20% of people. So you, yeah. you tweak it. So you account for the fact that a panther does have 80 millimetres armour sloped at whatever it is, yet another mechanism will keep the game flowing. So you're catering for the armour at a time, you're catering for the gamer. And then I expand it to uh, blind playtesting. Give it uh, the recent, uh, was it General Dame 2, has gone to people in the UK, United States, Austria, and Australia, and then they give you feedback. But you know, most of it, by the time it's got to that kind of secondary play testing, it's more tweaking than actual core mechanics. So um, just go, just going back to um, kind of the first thing that we spoke about, how how do you feel about people tinkering with your rules once they've got out? How dare they? <laughs> how very dare they? 
<laughs> As you said, we all, hey, look, I do it. I yeah. do it. Yeah. We all do it. There's always going to, we are, wargaming mm. is subjective. It's, it's uh, very, although it's supposedly objective, but your interpretation of military history is quite personal. If you think that French columns, when they charge in, should get a plus one, well, that's fine, isn't it? That's your take on history. Um, that's fine. Uh, normally, so if you could, you know, if people can go, look, here's three examples of French columns crashing in with the land. We go, okay, yeah, fine. You know, go with, go with it. I'm not, I'm not um, particularly precious uh, yeah. about. I think, I think personally, for me. Um, my rule set growing up was the, was the quarry rule, so I still hanker for that form of national characteristics, not necessarily from an historical basis, but from a, a nostalgic wargaming basis yeah. of playing. Yeah. You know, we had a group of friends and we all had an army that was ours that was based on a historical nation um and we all got they all had their own character if you like so that's yeah. kind of i'm 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 not pointing at history books i'm pointing at 12 year old ken with his um jacobite <laughs> yeah. miniatures <laughs> playing with his friends in a, in a church hall somewhere so that could that can have an effect as well i think yeah that, i mean that's why i kept in um group mm. um i had there are three a minimum of three to five national characteristics with every army yeah because otherwise, they are, you, not only was it, I think that does reflect history to a sort, but otherwise they're just bland. Yes. You're just, you know, one platoon faces another platoon and it doesn't matter what armour you have. Um, it, it creates, it helps creates that little bit of depth that players can, as you say, they can enjoy because a German army is going to be different to French and French different to Italian and so on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So those, um, so those early sets. Then you you started off with General de Brigade, um, and then these guns at Gettysburg and Panzergrenadier. Yeah. So yeah. how did they develop from that first General de Brigade? Well, um, unbelievably, um, General de Brigade. Some people bought it and liked it. Yeah, they did. Oh, blimey. Okay, um, so once you've kind of got that boost you think well the basic rules work yeah and the the historical kind of concepts uh that you have work so you think mm. okay uh well guns of gettysburg was a fairly easy step next down the line because it was adopted a similar mechanism my uh colleague uh mark uh, did the same with british grenadier and yep. took the general brigade thing and just uh, adapted it in his own mm. way. Panzergrenadier was was different. Uh, I was trying to reflect in Panzergrenadier a bit of the fun that we'd had when playing squad leader yes. many yeah. years back. <laughs> trying to just try and trying to include that we had that that kind of you know that fun of element of World War Two that was a job but still based on you know orders and history etc. Mm. Uh, and they developed from that. And I I, I think if you once you know that people enjoy certain uh, types of rules, then they will enjoy them regardless of the period. As long as, you know, you've got to have your, you know, they accept the fact that you've got, it's a game that's playable, but still has all its uh, its foundations in history. Mm. Uh, and, and that kind of works. Yeah, the, um, I was, we, were, we played British Grenadier at the weekend. Um, right. And, um, 
I was looking. I've got, I'm, I'm looking around because the, the rule book is. Oh, here it is. Um, I, I, on the back of the rule book, oh, there's, yes. there's kind of all the Dave Brown's General Brigade rules based on this system. And there were a couple, weren't there? You've mentioned British Grenadier. Um, there was De Craig's Kunst. Was that? Yeah, Ang that was uh, um, Angus. Uh, Angus. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he delighted in that that title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's gonna. I'm gonna lose my monetization just purely by saying that. Yeah. Um, there, there, the there are your guns. Yeah, right? there. Are your guns. Uh, that was one. kind of um, it's kind of Crimean War in that sort of era. Oh, was right. it? I didn't realize that. I think so. Yeah. Oh, I might have a look and see if I can find a copy of them um, for my uh, Italian risorgimento. Um, and uh, Bloody Picnic, which is World War One, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, so they were, if I get it, if I get it right, then they were taken by other people and kind yeah. of converted into those periods. Is that yeah, right? they just, um, I was, they were, um, you know, they would send in requests. Say, look, I've got, a, a, I'd like to write a set of World War One rules, but I'd like to use um, General de Brigade or whatever it is as the kind of foundation mm. uh, for it. And I thought, yeah, okay, you know, as long as um, the publisher was happy, as long as you kind of, because if you went through the same publishing house, then they didn't have any issues with it. And uh, my only um, kind of condition on it was the fact that I can see it at the end yeah. to make sure it wasn't a complete heap of garbage. <laughs> so, so I think, well, no. But on the whole, they were okay. Yeah. Fine sets of rules on their own. I think um, British Grenadier was probably the... The best of them that came out. Obviously, the uh, Seven Years' War one was uh, was good as well. Um, so yeah, that's it. It's it's fine. It's just letting people um, use the, the basic foundation. I think there is a there is a comfort, and I'm saying that because we used um, most of those sets in having a similar sort of base to the yeah. mechanisms. Um, I mean, there's a pluses and minuses to it. The, the pluses <laughs> are that you get the, the the way the basic way the rules work the minuses are that you then think that one little aspect that is in one of the sets of the rules is then in another set of rules that you are playing and it actually yeah. isn't but you're yes. convinced because it's so similar that that's in it yeah you start looking through the index looking spending 10 minutes for finding a modifier that's actually in the napoleonic one yeah exactly that, we, we've had that a few times and and there was a there was a very famous occasion here where um we were, I think, I can't remember which set it was, but we we, were, we had a massive, we don't argue very often here because we, we, you know, we are really <laughs> off, yeah, <laughs> kind of friendly, happy-go-lucky group. And then uh, we're having this massive argument about uh, this thing in the rules. And it actually turned out that one of us had the original and the other one had the deluxe version. Oh, so we had two different yeah. versions of the same rules. Yeah. And oh, my word. <laughs> anyway, we still we still laugh about it now. We still laugh about it. <laughs> After the visit to the hospital, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, we'll talk in, in in detail about mechanisms and all that sort of stuff um, very shortly. I just want to kind of continue with the history um, of your rule writing, rather than rather than going to the um, the way they work at the moment, um, and you kind of you were you did the uh, the partisan press stuff for a while, um, yeah. and then you've become recently you've become involved with the Lardies and um, Ricewitz Press. Um, yeah. So, 
how did you come to get involved with with um, Nick and Rich and, and start these new kind of set of rules? Oh, no. <laughs> it was a question I thought, right, I, I, I wanted to uh, rewrite, um, not rewrite is quite the wrong word, but I wanted to rework a, a Napoleonic set of rules. But I want it to be, um, because as you read more, you do more, you, your ideas change on, on how you do stuff. And I thought, okay, well, let's start with the American Civil War rule set first, because that's generally easier to produce than Napoleonic's, because yeah. there's just less working parts in it. And it is, you know, it's one of my uh, favourite periods anyway. So yeah. produce that with quite different, mechanisms, different command and control and a different look upon it. Mm. And Rich Clark and Nick Skinner were, as publishers, they were war gamers and they were designers. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was an opportunity to work with people that could, could, could give you feedback and could uh, have discussions with them from a, uh, a war games angle, mm. as, as, pure, as opposed to purely kind of uh, military history angle. And that was so the opportunity to work with those two was uh, not to be missed. Yeah. But they are, they have come up with some quite different uh, ideas about wargaming. And both Pickett's Charge and General Darmay were, had moved into a slight, that sort of uh, area. Yeah. So I thought, well, they're the best people to, um, to, uh, to take it to. Uh, and invited them both around uh, for a game. Uh, had an American Civil War game, and I got the full Rich Clark, Nick Skinner <laughs> experience. Yeah. yeah, they're both great. They're both great guys, and are both coming at history and war gaming from two different angles, and they complement each other really quite well. Yes, yeah. So uh, Nick comes in at the kind of um, that that angle. Rich will come in at this angle, and then. You sit yourself in the middle and go, right, well, have I got a bit of that? Have I got mm. a bit of that? Yes. Then I'll, I'll go down there. So, yeah, they were, they were, I was, I was very fortunate that that first game went down pretty well. They didn't walk away thinking, this is a load of pile of whatever. What <laughs> 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 uh, helped up with drink. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. There's always drinks involved with those yeah. two. There's always drinks involved with those two. Uh, well, that's, we'll talk a bit. Um, we'll go into a, a bit of detail about General Darmay two towards the end of the thing, but I, I want to concentrate now more on the kind of the the detail of uh, of writing rules. And um, when you set out to write um, rules, do you kind of think about the level of the game? Is that one of the what are the initial things that you because you know I will see. A set of rules and it'll say you can play waterloo in three hours on a two-foot table and i'll yeah, throw right. it in the bin <laughs> so you're not playing waterloo yeah, yeah. so um what what where, where are you kind of setting your um goals or your boundaries when you start a set of rules um i i, I like to work for the fact that i look at right what do i like yeah uh wargaming with i like wargaming with if it's napoleonic it's, it's battalions Cavalry squadron slash regiments and yep. artillery batteries. I like to see them on the tabletop, and I like to see the interplay between them. What I personally don't like is just a block on the table that says that's a core. Yeah, and you uh, you attack me, and I get a plus one because I'm French. 
and you roll the dice and that's kind of it. Uh, there's not enough depth in there and there's not enough history. You know, I, I'm all for, I think uh, uh, many wargamers enjoy line, column, square. They like all that interplay between it. They like the kind of rock, paper, scissors bit of artillery, cavalry, infantry, different the different formations that will counter one or the other. And that gives a, a game depth and replayability. Yeah. Which, if you go up higher up through the games, you t they tend to be more simplistic and have less of that. And also, there's more command and control going on down at those levels. So brigadiers and divisional commanders, and to a certain extent, core commanders, but mainly the brigadiers and divisional commanders, they're doing the hard work on the ground. They are getting their brigades forward. They are telling the brigade to change formation, telling people to charge, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Whereas the corps commander or an army commander, he actually does very little. He'll set the battle plan out. Everyone will go, yes, sir. And he goes, I want, I want the whole army deployed by 0900 hours. And they'll go, certainly, sir. And then I'll go, uh, that's it. Right, off you go then. And report back to me on progress. And the only decisions he will make, such as Napoleon, will be when I release reserves. Is the, and that's it. And do you, do you feel then that um, uh, it's certainly something that I, I think is when you get to those higher levels, the period of the game matters less because yeah. you, you're you know the historical effect of of weapon types formations etc happens at that lower level so once you have a core commander game it could be napoleonic yeah. it could be american civil war it could be world war ii the decisions you're making about getting the right troops in the right place at the right time with the right bits of kit are the yeah. same throughout history yeah, I, I hesitate I, I, it's not it's probably not fair but bland does come to mind yeah. isn't it once, yeah. once you get to that level of game maneuvering a core deploying a core and then fighting well it doesn't matter what you've got you know they've all got some artillery they've all got they're all armed with uh, a, you know a, a weapon of some kind that's a, a firearm and you just it, it all becomes blended into the overall modifier so you lose all that detail. I think uh, many wargamers enjoy the detail. That's why we paint model soldiers that are all different. You know, you you want uh, a regiment of light infantry or you want a regiment of line infantry. That's why you paint hussars as opposed to and lancers and cuirassiers. We don't paint generic cavalry. It's That's a cavalry call done. So, yeah, it is. It's because we we tend to like detail. It's, it's important to reflect some, not all, but some of that detail in rules that you write. So you can you, you can work that out. Yeah. Do you, there's a, there's a, a thing with Wargamers, and I, I'm very much the same, in that I want, to, I want to commit that division of cavalry, but I also want to place that horse battery in that position. Yeah. So mm -hmm. is, is, it, is it difficult to please all those people concept no, no because i think actually if you look at history uh, and even now most, not most but many senior officers are micromanagers yeah and uh so you take nay at waterloo at any battle he did all that yeah he did not nay did not sit back as the corps commander uh, and then go right uh uh 
General Riley, uh, off you go, mate. I'll see you at tea time when it's over. Yeah. May went, right, I'm deploying the army. Uh, Mr. Riley, you take that flank, you take that flank, you go there. And then they rode, and same as Wellington, you ride to the point of the uh, points of pressure that are going on. And that does include coming up to you and going, General Riley, you need to get that horse battery deployed there. Mm. General Riley goes, uh, yes, sir, of course, sir. Or General Riley, have you not considered the fact that the enemy cavalry approaching might indicate you should form square at this point? And then General Riley goes, oh, uh, yes, of course, sir. You know, that's what managers yeah. do. Yeah. And, and generals, doesn't matter whether you're a corps commander, army commander. If you look at Wellington, he was an army commander, but he did all that. He was directing the deployment of batteries um, at Waterloo. I'm telling Ramsey or whatever, he couldn't uh, do whatever he did. So that is actually, uh, being a war gamer and wanting to move a division of cavalry <laughs> and uh, manoeuvre the horse battery to get it into a nice enfilade or whatever you want yeah. to do, is is based on history, so that's all mm. fine. Oh, that's good, good to say. I'm not, I'm not the only one, though. I'm not the only one. <laughs> When you when you looking at mechanisms for rules, we talked about a little bit about this earlier on. Uh, are you searching for something new, or are you trying to develop things that you've used before? Are you looking for that that magic mechanism that will all suddenly oh, go? Oh, yeah. Dave, that's brilliant! That is, mate. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, I'm in bed at night and thinking, come up with something really cool, and generally you can't. It's, yeah. Either all been done before in one shape or another. Um, it is, it's yes, you, you can come up with new ways of doing things. I mean, command and control has been uh, attempted in uh, numerous different ways in numerous different games. Um, but I, I went down the um, ADC method for Pickett's Charge and General Domain because it seemed to reflect uh, a, a reasonably uh, historical, realistic way of. And representing command and control, and yet it was simple. Yeah. Um, so as before, isn't it? I said it's when you're coming up with mechanisms. There's no point in having a new mechanism if it doesn't do what you want it to do. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't work. I go back to your uh, previous question in that wonderful quiz we had about <laughs> <laughs> casualty tables. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the, the modern drivers, isn't it, is don't have casualty tables. You just roll a, a handful of dice and count the sixes and uh, you, you're going to get saving throw or something. We, I tried to do that. I said, right, well, I want to do that, but it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because the casualty table uh, allowed us, in, so in, in General Darmé, uh, portrayed not only casualties, but it also uh, showed you getting... Uh, destiny results, fire discipline results, morale test results, and low on ammo results. So you'll suddenly see that a casualty chart could give you five bits of information from one result. Whereas rolling a handful of dice and looking for sixes doesn't. So it's just a question of modifying what works and moving um, modifiers into an area that works so that's why uh, i know we'll come to gda2 general dummy 2 but that has no pluses and minuses or no maths in it whatsoever yeah do you think um just just in general then do you think there's a dr i mean there is a drive for if you <laughs> rules to get simpler um you know yeah. if we look at 
um, the most amusingly called set of rules ever, the Newbury Fast Play, uh, Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> um, compared to where we are now, this, um, you know, I, I'm quite happy to use the word dumbing down. It, it's, hmm. it's become a lot um, less complicated, the rule sets, for good or bad, whichever way you want to think about it. Do you feel a pressure to kind of go with the cool kids and, and, and go down that road? Or like you say, you're keeping a casualty table in this set of rules. Is it how it fits the game rather than fitting in with current trends? Um, I want to make the games slicker and faster and more intuitive, but without reducing realism, depth and replayability. So I think some games have felt that they have become so simple uh, that the mechanisms are really easy, really easy to remember, but you can only play the game about once or twice and it's kind of, you've kind of done it. Mm. Whereas you need to uh, have mechanisms that have sufficient depth in them so you can replay the game, so you can have a Napoleonic game again and again and again, and each one is different. Mm. Um, so it's there is a bit of pressure, but it's resisted, and we just go, yeah, we just go drive our own route down there. So it's ignore modifiers, don't have a long list of modifiers, but keep the modifiers in a different shape that reflect history. Yeah. And just come at it from a different way. Mm. And uh, do you cons consider the size of game when you're writing your rules? Do, are you thinking, you know, this is going to be okay for a big weekend game as a, as well as for a six by four club night game? Yeah, with Napoleonics, yeah, and um, Napoleonics and the ACWs. Yeah, I always like to think, okay, does this work one to one? Yes, it does. Okay, it works one to one. Great. Um, what about a game that has um, two to three players on each side? Mm. Does it work equally well? And you go, well, yes, because each player can then have a brigade and one player can have a brigade and have the CNC. So, yes, that works. And then if you then expand it, does it also work at this level, which is why I tend to put call commander rules in above uh, the, the, the main meat of the rules as well. So then they, you're catering for the uh, much larger game. So uh, yes is the simple answer. I'm always looking for, it's got to work at one-to-one -one and then for multiplayer games as well. Yeah, which, which is um, a relatively unique way of looking at things at the moment. I mean, a lot of the rules that come out are very much skirmish-based. Um, yeah. And <laughs> trouble, and they will often rely on mechanisms that, struggle once you've expanded the game to bigger than it was yeah. intended to. It, it's a bit like um, some of the skirmish games where you'll uh, flip a card to see who goes. Yeah. Well, if you, that's fine with two or three players, but if you expanded that to 20 people, you sit there for three hours waiting for your card to come up and everyone else has, you know, moved around and done everything. And it doesn't. I try to create a... A, a rule mechanism that allows all the players to be doing stuff all at the same time. So no one person is sitting there waiting for their activation to come along. One method is, is rolling dice. So if you roll a one, you go last. You roll a six, you can go first. 
when a multiplayer game that breaks down because the person with a one has been wiped out before he can do anything. <laughs> Everyone else has had a nibble before he's got yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. How would you go about the idea of complexity then? Um, is that is that through feedback from uh, playtesting, or how do you work with the? You know, uh, uh, how complex do you go? It's playtesting does have um, uh, some. Uh, feedback into into it, but generally, I'll sit I'll sit it at the level of com complexity that I feel is right uh, for that period of history mm. and for the rules uh, I'm writing. You I I find you've got to have um, sufficient depth, stroke, complexity in it to make the game a challenge, yeah, and to make it replayable. So though you don't complexity isn't you know, the classic complexity, I think, is kind of like Empire. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. you, you, you'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you need a, a quick reference sheet to see where you are in the quick reference sheet yeah. uh, before you consult the main rules. And it's just chart after chart after chart. That's, although it's not complex, it is complicated because you've got to go through a million... Um, little uh, it jumps to get to where you want to be. Um, so the, the idea should be that you aren't look, looking at lots of charts. There should be uh, aspects of command and control and aspects of combat that you have to think about mm -hmm. and take into account, but you're not having to look up, look up those, um, those aspects in a huge table of 38 factors positives and 38 factors of negatives so there's a it's a different you've got to create depth and reliability but without going to that uh, the extreme that kind of empire etc did or your classic newbie fast play or not mm. that's okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> a morale chart that covers two pages here. yeah exactly exactly um not not quite comedy, but um, a bit of a, a bit of a dig. Um, dice. What's up? What's up yeah. with all the dice? Why? Why is everything D six? They're not allowed. They're not allowed. I've got all these. I've got all these D tens and D twelves and D eights and D fours in my bag, and no, I can't use them. It's. Uh, I, I boil it down to uh, two things at the end of the yeah. day. Uh, you know when we refer to barrier to entry yes everyone's got d6 but not everyone especially a few years back if they weren't role-playing games if you said oh, you need a d12 most people go well i haven't got d12 <laughs> etc and then the second point is uh with a 2d6 you get that bell curve of range slash probability mm. that outweighs that gives you much better uh, ability and spread than uh, a d10 because d10 is either it's completely random one to ten or the, so the only way you, you modify that is by bringing the the middle range is all the same so you're basically saying well five to whatever seven is kind of the, the main range or six to seven is the main range and the rest of it is is where it matters whereas a d6 or 2d6 with that bell curve you've got a uh, a nice variety you've got where it all happens around seven yeah 
And then you've got the extremes that people uh, love because they can roll a double one and everyone will moan or cheer. <laughs> yeah. And then someone rolls a double six and then the other side will all moan or cheer. Yeah. So, so hence, it's just sixes, D6s are easy and they present a better range. Um, whereas, you know, okay, you can do the same with percentile dice, I suppose, but it's just, it's just uh, ease of entry. Everyone's got a D6. We were using average dice at the weekend with British no, Grenadier. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, Mark, Mark uh, went for those. Yeah. yeah. I think, again, it's, it's perfectly acceptable, but it's just, for, for me, it would just be if someone hasn't got a set of average dice in their collection, they'll open your rules, look at them, they'll go, oh, average dice, can't be bothered. You know what I mean? Um, and put it down. That's just, it's, it's just basic. I, th I think the question is more, um, has anyone got a set of average dice that aren't over 30 years old? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, we're faded. They're all faded. Mine are all faded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mine are all faded. I think, I've got, I think I've got one or two with a slightly deeper groove in them for the numbers that is still you yeah. can still read without getting really close to them or yeah. shining a torch on them i think i had to use them for wrg fifth yeah, edition yes, or something yeah. i've still got them and that was in uh would have been in about the 1980s so i've still got them from then there's somebody somewhere still making average dice i'm wondering why they've yeah. got a massive box of them in the corner <laughs> nobody's, nobody's buying them <laughs> <laughs> oh dear so how then how then do you go about bringing in period flavor you've mentioned research um etc so what's kind of dave brown's philosophy on making a set of war games rules that is napoleonic um or acw um you know it's period specific about uh, three main things off the top of my head uh one you've got to have the weapons of the period. Yep. Uh, two, you've got to have the tactics of the period. Um, three, uh, the command and control of the period, though that can be, mm. you know, obviously stretched across multiple periods. And also find that if you use the right terminology, that gets people um, into the narrative of the game. Yeah. I find there's nothing, although it works, if you, just to quote, I think it was, one rule set. Uh, it's a very fine rule set, and I was like, but I can use the if you don't mind. I use the. It was something like the sentence when a TUG may push an SUD one BW up to three BW in one turn, and you just think if you'd called uh, a base width something else. Yes. Uh, let's say if, if it were from the ancient period, call it a pace. If you were to call a TUG something like um, a cohort then you're using the language of the period uh, rather than a, a load of uh, anacronyms and abbreviations that are not of the period so it, it, it takes people into the game you have if you use the correct terminology or as best you can use ancient terminology for ancients napoleonic terminology for that world war ii terminology for world war ii people get involved in the game and then if you use the right tactics, you use Napoleonic tactics. I know most all writers will say they do, but there are some some games out there that actually seem to encourage rather odd Napoleonic tactics. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, lines might be 
you know, superior against cavalry or whatever. And you just think, all right, that doesn't seem to make... I'm sure the drill reaction was form square <laughs> or stuff like that. Uh, so it's putting all those all those bits together is get uh, and obviously the commander control is it are you having an order system in the game that is reflective of the period? It's it's quite quite simple. Is it? It's uh, did Ney order cavalry charges? Did Ney order infantry charges? Yes, he did. So have that form of commander control mm. in it. Don't have something like you know latrine digging, you know, or something <laughs> or, or or medical services. Well, they wouldn't have anything to do with that. He wouldn't care about it, yeah, or, or anything like that. So it is. It's sit sit the game uh, within its historical uh, context mm. and work from there. Yeah, and is it important to you? And I think it is, but um, to get that background reading done to get those historical um accuracies from first-hand accounts yeah they are um uh, rich clark i think has touched on this many times it's about i think he got it from uh, paddy griffith mm. uh, which is looking for gems uh of pure historical accuracy where you'll get a first-hand account of somebody who will say this is what we did at this battle. And then you can go, you know, uh, as long as it's not some something like, uh, what's that, Marbo's memoirs, whatever it was, as yeah. long as it's reasonably accurate, you can go, right, that is clearly what happened in this instance. This is what they did. I mean, there's a very, just to put two examples across, there's a very good example at the Battle of Leipzig where a Prussian, now a Frenchman is describing He's in square being attacked by Prussians. And he describes the a Prussian Hussar regiment crashing into his square and um, smashing a whole corner off it. And he said all the horses came back and they were covered in bayonet wounds, etc. And you think, well, there is a first-hand account of cavalry crashing into a square, yeah. which you'll get... Uh, other thing will say, well, cavalry can't, will never close with a uh, bayonets because they'll always shy away. Well, there's a historical account that says it doesn't. Uh, another one uh, was uh, about British musketry in the Napoleonic Wars, with the evidence for giving them a plus one or that famous, mm. you know, British musketry is better. Well, there's a very good quote from a French lieutenant in the 9th Leger at the Battle of Talavera. Now, the 9th Leger were a rock-hard regiment that had been throughout, so they knew what they were doing. And he heard the British volleys at Talavera, and he said something like, we'd never heard a musketry volley as well fed of that. So <laughs> clearly, these guys had seen it all. They'd been at Marengo and everywhere, and they were going, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is looking good. So hence, you could say, British musketry, the impact, you know, uh, was better. So therefore, dig out those gems and then put them into war games rules. Uh, there was uh, one, a brilliant one where, nay, uh, there's hesitancy in General Darmay and Pickett's Charge. You go and some war gamers, yeah, I think it's great, and other ones, ah, it's rubbish, I'll never do that, you know. But there's a brilliant quote from uh, nay sent his ADC to one of the generals at Waterloo who was supposed to be assaulting Le Hay Saint, but it decided he wouldn't. Ah, so right. it looked a bit rough. 
Yeah. And the ADC literally came up to him and said, look, the marshal has said he doesn't want to see you hesitating around here. Get stuck in, uh, you know, in the appropriate words. So there's a, a fantastic first-hand account of a brigadier general not doing what he was supposed to do because he was thinking this looks a bit tough and the commander-in-chief coming up and going, oi, get moving. <laughs> <laughs> so you can take, so you dig out all those gems yeah, and then you, you put them into the rules and then hopefully that creates a, a historical environment of which you can gain in. Obviously, the hardest part for that is um, is ancients, because there ain't no, well, it's very few. Yeah. And time, uh, what's his name, uh, Polybius and Livy, you've kind of almost run out. Yeah. So they're, they're hard to go back in history. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's less first-hand accounts and yeah. less. And I think a lot of those uh, ancient accounts as well, is there's very much a, a slant towards the person who wrote it. It's things like, yes, Darius had an army of 20 million men. <laughs> I don't think so. Alexander, <laughs> Alexander had 20, uh, but he killed them yeah, all. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> prone to exaggeration. Nothing wrong with that. Somebody, somebody <laughs> who paid for that history, they had to get it. Had to get it's it. true. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, lots of research goes into it then. Um, and obviously, over time, your 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 rules have have, have developed. So mm. Panzer Grenadiers become O Group, and guns at Gettysburg has become yeah. Pickett's Charge, and General Brigade has become General the Army. Um, so how does that process work then in 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 pushing a set of rules on from where you first came with them to where they are today? Um, generally, it will get to a point where they're published and bearing in mind that that's the time by a set of rules has been published. I've probably been playing that for two or three years mm, beforehand. Yeah. So it'll get published and then you'll leave it for a bit and you'll dip your toe in occasionally and, and get all the feedback. And then as a result of coming back to playing them, with all the feedback from people uh, since publication, that starts to trigger different thoughts and you think oh you know maybe i could do it slightly differently and in the meantime other rule sets have come out maybe they've done something slightly different um and you think oh okay that's an interesting way of doing things uh, i had feedback from numerous people about that maybe i should do it let's look at you know world war ii in a different way go back do some more research look for some justification to make the changes and you think oh actually that might be a better way of doing it and then you you start again and you just start the whole process again basically you scrap everything you've done before try not to be influenced by it no it's difficult uh, and then just start re rehash the whole process but going down this different route mm. uh, and the as the, the rules uh certainly uh general darmay and pickett's charge have come with this so additional level of command and control and the ADC um, mechanism yeah. that you, you, you mentioned earlier on. And that adds another kind of level of decision-making for, for the people in, involved. Was that a Lardy influence? Where did that come from? 
Yeah, that's rubbish. I'd invented it well before yeah, then. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Clark, yeah. doesn't know anything. No, <laughs> uh, the ADCs was actually before um, I uh, started up with uh, the, the wonderful Rich and Nick. Yeah. Um, and that was just simply based on, I was looking at once, what does actually, I did, uh, I wrote an article for, kind of for myself, I never really, uh, eventually, it was going to be for a magazine, but never got around to it, was what does a general actually do in a battle? And looking at all the aspects of what they do, and it was came down to the fact, well, if you're the CNC, um, as we touched on before, all you do is deploy the army, uh, then, for instance, at Pickett's Charge, whatever, all you do is you go, right, you see that clump of tree over there, uh, General Pickett? Yeah. Yeah, that's your point. Attack it. Done. See you later. Let me know uh, when you've done it. So they, um, I thought, right, well, that's not the decision-making most people want. They want to do stuff. So move it down a level. What does the divisional commander do? Well, he does a lot more, and the brigadier does a lot more. They're all about deploying batteries. They're all about making sure their formations are in good order. They're all about getting getting the brigade together to push it into an assault, etc. Find all the examples of when they did that. And I thought, well, at the end of the day, let's use a, a mechanism that's variable. So you can't always guarantee doing everything every turn. Uh, and there's a very common uh, thread of board game design that's called resource management. And although it isn't quite like that. It's not dissimilar. It's basically, how do you manage a variable hand of commander control every turn? Yeah. And you think, and that gives you all your priorities. What do I want to do? How would I, you know, you think, I wanted six ADCs this turn, so I wanted to launch the big attack and it hasn't happened. So how do I manage that? And that's about, it's all about that. How do I resource manage the ADCs in my hand? And how do I do carry out a battle plan with the ones I've got? You think, okay, well, I haven't got it. I'll have to put it off till next turn or, you know, do something else. So, no, I came out of that for Pickett's Charge. And as I said, the first big outing was to the glorious Clark and Skinner. Yeah. And they actually quite liked it. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. So, um, that was okay. They Nick very quickly picked up on the fact that if you spread your command across all the brigades, you were less likely to go hesitant therefore more likely to win the initiative. Uh, and Rich found that if you banged everything into one brigade for a massive artillery assault with huge double quick or forwards, you, you might do very well with that one brigade, but then the rest of your army might, because it hasn't got the command, it mm. might not be doing what you want and you lose the initiative. So, uh, so it worked on that. I worked on that level. It, it's a mechanism. I mean, I've got to say, it's a mechanism we very much enjoy, and and um, we we've played quite a few games of Pickett's Charge, um, but it it does restrict you as a commander with what you can do, which I I agree with. It's quite realistic and brings that friction in. But did you kind of get some resistance to that in that people would be oh, I can't do everything um, I want to do? Oh yeah, yeah, you. You stick your head above the parapet, and some people will shoot at yeah. you. Yeah, these the the communist uh, reaction is uh, no. Once surely, once a brigade gets an order, it will just carry on carrying out that order mm. um, until it, something happens. Yeah. Well, two points there uh, that 
that say it isn't. First of all, these brigades are commanded by generals. And generals will do the things their way. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I've only met about three generals. One I've wargamed with quite a bit. And two, through uh, a much earlier period of my life, we just looked at them, saluted, said, sir, and hope they didn't ask too many questions. Um, they are not people that will just blindly carry out uh, whatever they have to do. They are generals and they will make the decision themselves. So if they want to attack slowly, they'll attack slowly. If they want to redeploy or change formation, they will do that. If they decide that it's all looking a bit tough, they might halt yeah. and we'll wait and see. Yeah. And so uh, there's that aspect of it. And B, I also put in uh, GDA2 examples three historical examples of hesitancy or not having full command and control in the Napoleonic Wars. And absolutely, you know, they're fantastic examples of, uh, one is where a brigadier halted an entire Austrian brigade because they could hear firing over, some firing going on on the right flank. Yeah. He didn't know what it was, so he stopped and halted, sent some officers over. 20 minutes later, they come back and go, oh, it's all right, mate, it's, uh, sir, it's all our own skirmishes firing. And he went, oh, okay. Because in a war game, yeah. you know what's going yeah. on. But the man on the ground doesn't. He doesn't know exactly what's happening. So uh, it's all things like that. And yes, there was a lot of, uh, not a lot of resistance, but there was, there was resistance to people that were just used to moving every single battalion. Every time. In yeah. exactly the way they wanted. Yeah. And... It's designed to bring be frustrating, and they did find it frustrating. And they said, "Well, I don't like it because it's frustrating." Well, what do you think Napoleon felt like at Waterloo, or Ney felt like at Waterloo? They were frustrated because mm. things weren't going perfectly. You know, the cavalry didn't go in the way they were supposed to, etc., um, etc. Et so they were they were frustrated by um, as we all even take anything, take the world of work. We are frustrated in the world of work by our bosses, our uh, people who are at the same uh, level of us and the people under us are supposed to do things that they don't do. It's it's frustrating, isn't it? You, know, you come in the next morning and you go, well, why, hang on, why is it not being done? <laughs> that happens in warfare, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I, I, so, I think, I think yeah. it's, a, it's, a very good, it's a very good mechanism indeed. And... Um, I just want to quickly uh, talk about O Group, if we may, um, because that you know that's got the the aide de camp mechanism in. You've got choices to make, um, yeah. and it has become a very popular set of rules very very quickly. Um, you know, as I said at the very start of this um, uh, interview, it got to the semi-finals of the. World Cup of War Games <laughs> rules, which um, when, when you consider there was well, there was 108 sets of rules nominated um, yeah. and it got to the quarterfinals and there were 40, in, in total there was over 14,000 votes cast. So, yeah, um, yeah. uh, you know, Obviously, you, you don't want your head to expand too far. But how, no, no. how, how do you think that, or can you think of the reasons why that has caught on so quickly and um, become a staple within the World War Two rule sets um, that people are playing? It, it just seems to have caught um, 
it just seems to have caught the wind for some reason. Yeah, I, I wanted it to be, um, I wanted it to reflect um, what my brief experience of wearing green had uh, shown to me how stuff works. Yeah. And I wanted it to be very different to other games that were out just before its release, such as Flames of War, yeah. etc. I didn't want it to be just a, a, something like that. I wanted it to be set at a certain level where you were the man in the command post mm. trying to uh, push a battalion forward with supports yeah. and, and have some of the, again, frustrations and considerations that that man in that command post uh, had to do. So it's, where am I going to put my platoons? I mean, one of the things I did uh, in the deployment was to have, I wanted a good deployment system, a deployment system where you just didn't bung everything on the table and it was all fantastic and you all crack on because it doesn't work like that. One of the things I did with the, uh, the glorious light infantry was we always did fighting patrols or recce patrols to establish a point uh, where you'd stop and go, right, okay, this is good enough, go back, get the rest of the platoon, they'll move yeah. up, and blah, blah, blah. And I think, well, let's, let's have that in a game. Let's have combat patrols that do that. And what that did was to create the fog of war. So it's about removing as much information from the opponent as you possibly mm. can without spoiling the game. Yeah. So combat patrols and reserves and all that uh, system around consolidation, AFV consolidation, is about removing information from the opponent so he doesn't know what's happening. Yeah. So uh, a combat patrol could be uh, an infantry platoon, could be an anti-tank weapon, it, it, or it could be nothing. So it creates that, uh, to some extent, that fog of war, that uncertainty that the company commanders and the battalion commander on the ground would have. They wouldn't know exactly where everything was. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was try to keep the... So the complicated bit is command, making decisions. Though the decisions are relatively straightforward, you have to think. That's where you've got to think. You go, oh, what are we going to do? We've only got seven <laughs> orders. But the easy bit is the shooting, is don't get bogged down in too much detail with charts and tables with shooting and especially spotting. Uh, I mean, I think I've mentioned before, spotting had to be dead easy. You don't want another table of 20 factors of spotting. You roll the dice, you've not spotted, so you can't fire. So you just think, well, I've just wasted 10 minutes of my time because I can't fire. So just have that with one dice that says you've either spotted the opponent and you've put down accurate fire mm. or we don't really know where he is he's roughly there we'll just put some rounds down and hope we disrupt him a bit or keep his head down done so that's simple you add the dice you roll some more dice for your fire keep it all simple uh, but you add in just enough rules to make it hopefully realistic as well so mg42s they get a mini bonus. There's a small bonus here. Roll double six, you'll get an extra hit to reflect the fact that they were mm. a bit of a nasty weapon. Submachine guns, uh, when they go into close assault, you don't get shock. Well, that just reflects, it gives a slight edge 
to those armed with submachine guns in close quarter battle. Um, so it was a question of those two, is it was command and control, think in depth, keep the mechanisms, the shooting mechanisms relatively simple. So they're easily, uh, re easily recalled and easily, easily uh, worked out on the tabletop. But then it's um, clearly designed as, a, as you say, a battalion plus support game. Yeah. And then very shortly afterwards, people were doing massive games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do Kursk. How do I do Kursk? Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, that's we've had a, a bit of an email conversation in the past about it. You've, you've kind of added yeah. some rules in for higher level, haven't you? Where it, kind of each person has a battalion, um, but it's a multiplayer game with, with you know, yeah, we did. We uh, again refer back to the, the went to Newbury with our thirty-six mm. table. Again, warfare is quite rigid. Is that you all have your boundaries? So we just split the table up into six sections of of six foot. And so that was your operational boundary. You couldn't go um, into the your your um, your partner or, or you know co colleagues' boundary area mm. uh, because you're going to get blue on blue. And that's what that's what in every operation I've done. There are boundaries, uh, so your description that you operate in this, and the overall core commander can give you feeding assets as he sees fit. So you might get the tanks, or you might not, or whatever. And that worked very well, depending on yeah, was depending good. on who makes the brews for the core commander. Oh, it's a cup of tea. Here's a cup of tea. Have some tank, lad. Have yeah. some tank. Yeah, you can have, you can have the uh, air force. <laughs> Off you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah, we we very much we've very much enjoyed our group here. So uh, yeah, uh, superb set of rules. Um, so we'll just um, as we I mean we've been going for an hour and ten on this section alone. Um, <laughs> Um, probably an hour and a half before that as well. Um, so we'll just um, just move on then and just talk about um, General D'Arme 2. Um, and yep. the first thing I've got to say is how long did it take you to come up with that name? Uh, about five yeah, minutes. I, just... <laughs> <laughs> I, wanted to see, I wanted it to be the next step. Uh, there was General de Brigade and it was going to be General de Division. Easy. There's already another set of rules out called General oh, Division. Yeah. And I went, oh, that's so annoying. I thought I could steal their name, as other people have done. Stan, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I'll just go the next next one up, next step up. Call it General Darmain. Yeah. Easy. So yeah, it, there's a there's just a stepping yeah. stone the, principle. It, just, it, didn't, it didn't need a, a, like a, a massive discussion group and um, hordes of advertising executives to decide on General oh. Duarte too. Oh, easy. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, now, as far as I understand it, it's kind of done and out with final play testers at the moment. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it's in its final editorial with the great Mr. Clark. Excellent. Uh, and once, and I think he... Uh, reckons it will be uh, out before Christmas, which I think it probably will be. This, the playtesting is all, all been done, it's all finished. Yeah. It's just editing. Rich will finish the editing, which is a bit of a slog uh, for him. So credit to Mr. Clark. He, he'll work through that. And But once that is cracked, then the rest of it is 
that's fairly straightforward. It's just putting in the pictures where the pictures need to go. Comes back to me. I rehash it. You know, check it all. Add bits. Uh, away it goes. Uh, it's already been proof. Uh, the original copy's been proofread. You might get proofread one more time in its final thing, mm. uh, and then it really goes off for the. Uh, I can't remember what it's called now. You get a big, uh, big print back from the printers, a big copy. Yeah. And you go through that, and that's it's kind Ready of done. To go. So, um, yeah. what can um, regular players of of General D'Arme? And I have to admit, I'm still in General de Brigade um, <laughs> because we we catch up, Riley. Catch up. Money. It's Yorkshire. I don't have to spend more money to get General D'Arme, and I still play General de Brigade. Getting me money's getting me money's worth. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yeah. So, what will we? What what can players expect then? What are the kind of the the, the main changes that you've made? Other than, other than adding a two to the title. Yes, a two. That's it. <laughs> um, it, it was basically it was uh, keep General Darme. Uh, on the same uh, kind of railway track. Yeah. So, you're, so when you come to play it, you'll be familiar with mm. the game turn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But everything has been changed to reflect there's more command and control decisions. Mm. So uh, you've got command and control decisions starting with the divisional commander. Yeah. So he's got his own aspect of command and control. Then you've got all the ADCs. Uh, the taskings, ADC taskings have been tweaked a bit to be a bit more uh, easy to understand and a bit more intuitive. Uh, and so it goes on. Charges are uh, easier to administrate, uh, to get through. I think there were 17 pages in the original one, and that's down to about 11. But the whole idea was to go through the whole thing. It is command and control is the bit that should make you think. So there's more time spent on command and control. And the rest of the processes haven't lost any of their Napoleonic nuances, but they're much quicker and more intuitive. So, in so for instance, a column firing fires with one casualty dice. Right, you'll get a casualty on a four plus, you won't get anything on a one to three. Under GDA one, it had the same system as volley firing. So you'd need to roll the dice, check through the modifiers, and halve it because you're in a column and then round down halves. So you just think you've taken all that out, you're going to get the same result in a system that's quicker and far more intuitive. Mm. So you're not referring to the rule book. You're not referring to the play sheet, and therefore you're much more invested in the game. Right. Most people, when they're playing it, they are thinking hard about how to win the game through command mm. and not worrying about whether they've got um, you know, a plus one modifier here. Yeah. They just want to get their troops in the right place. So there's more thought and command and control, but it plays quicker and slicker, but it still has all the Napoleonic nuances that go with it. Um, so it still has all the same modifiers, but they're just done in a different way. So you're no, no adding up or no taking away. So you don't, what people do, as soon as you've got pluses and minuses, first thing they do is pick the play sheet up and then start going through it. They'll go, what did you roll, Ken? And you go, I rolled eight. Okay, are you elite? No. You veteran? No. You line? No. What are you? I'm conscript. Oh, okay, minus two. And then you go to the others. Yeah. Any losses? What are you in? No. 
right um sorry what do you roll again <laughs> yeah right so that just takes you out yeah. of the game now now although there's still some referral to the play sheet most of it you'll get yeah you'll go uh what what have i rolled you've um the volley chart for instance only got standard volley inferior volley weak volley now, standard volley means you have no negative modifiers. So you always fire on that one. You might get bonus if you're good troops. If you've got a negative, you just drop to inferior. If you've got two negatives or more, you drop to weak. So everyone instantly after about playing a turn knows exactly where they are. They'll just go, what, what are you firing? I'm firing at skirmishes. One negative modifier, inferior volley, done. Mm. Roll the dice, I know what yeah. I've got. So um, it's uh, it's much slicker in that respect. So you can you can get through games much quicker. Is there a concern um, when you are sort of pushing a set of rules onto um, new boundaries? Do you ever think I really don't want to fuck this up? <laughs> it was working pretty well before. I don't want to absolutely yeah, screw this up. Um, yeah, you've got to be you've got to be fairly certain that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. There's no point in in you know uh, uh, doing it for whatever. You know, I could mention some companies that churn out different codecs. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we know why they're doing it. It's got nothing to do with that. It's because I think two General Darme two is a better Napoleonic rule set than General Darme one. And it's as simple as that. And it's to make sure you that's exactly what you are producing at the end of the day and where you are moving things in a different direction. You've got to put in the designer's notes so that the person who's going is going, why doesn't my French column get plus one? And if you've put in the notes that go, look, historically, they didn't do this. I mean, one of the classics is going to be you know, uh, rifle ranges in the Napoleonic Wars. All skirmishes now fire at the same range. Right. Now, some picture got to, you know, uh, what's his name? Rifleman Beckett or whatever could pick, yeah, could pick off a general at seven miles. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he could. But for the vast majority of riflemen, uh, once you get onto the Napoleonic battlefield with about 40 rounds in your, your ammo uh, pouch, uh, once you're in the smoke of the firing line, you can't see any further than someone with a musket. So your range is all roughly the same. Maybe you had 50 yards, you're a bit more accurate at 50 yards. Doesn't, at the end of the day, Nay or Wellington don't really care. It's how well is the skirmish stream doing across the whole piece is what concerns them. They're not worried too much. So it's things like that. Have you explained your reasoning? In some design which yes you have so hopefully you carry most people with you they'll go oh okay all right i can see where you're coming from and go from there and if they don't they'll house rule it anyway yeah exactly <laughs> they'll go no we're putting rifle range back up buggers <laughs> <laughs> uh, buggers uh yeah. so uh just to finish off then dave uh, what what are kind of your future plans have you got anything bubbling under uh, is there anything that you would kind of wish to um do in the future that you haven't done yet yeah i am currently working this is my background project for the last but uh, while but it's starting to 
come to the fore a bit more now because as uh, General Dame 2 has kind of finished mm. that particular project, is uh, Ancient Set Rules. So I've got a working title of Vexillarius. Ooh. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know if I'll stick with that. Yeah. But that is about uh, ancient warfare, uh, but just trying to be a little bit different to uh, the other rules that are out there. It's more about managing the army, making sure your battle lines sorted, mm. getting charges sorted, where are your commanders, how, how have you deployed stuff, what every wing's doing, etc. Oh, that sounds um, very, that sounds very interesting because most most ancient sets are um, kind of more towards the competition style game than the. Yeah. Um, than the yeah. historical reenactment. So, is is that the line you're going to, or you're looking at going down? It is more historically based as opposed to competition based. It won't be competition. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's just going to be as as best as one can. It's my interpretation mm. of how ancient battles are fought. So you're not. It isn't a question of just marching forward. Uh, everyone gets stuck in. You roll a d6. Uh, I've got better armor than you, so uh, you recall, you know, whatever. It's it's going to be about commanders managing that battle line. Oh, good. Um, so it's, it'll be different. Hopefully, yeah. No, I like. Mm. No, I like. I mean, in my experience, I, I, I do quite enjoy a bit of spear chucking on on the side. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, but um, <laughs> most sets of rules tend to deteriorate into, you know. Um, as you were saying earlier on, that 21% versus 22% angle, everything lining up the bases. And um, as soon as, uh, yeah. you know, apologies to people who enjoy competition gaming, but as soon as you've got middle Republican Romans fighting Han Chinese, my brain switches off. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think I, I'm, I'm very interested to see what you come up with for that. It's, uh, it would be lovely to have an historical rule. I've just set it in a classical period. So it's basically Greek and uh, Greece and Rome. That's kind of more or less it. It's nothing else. There's no longbows, well, apart from Indians, but you know what I mean? No knights in armour. So long around. as you don't put the Italian wars... As a, as, a, <laughs> as, a, as, as a minor a offset of the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, yeah, they get, if fighting the Italian Wars, give the pipe block a plus one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. There's my rant no, for you. Well, it's uh, it, it's been brilliant talking to you today, Dave. Thank you very much for all the time you've spent with me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Um, you, you get to ask me a question at the end if you've got one. Have I escaped? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I've oh, already somewhere. Oh, bugger. Uh, several, uh, some are rude. I won't answer that. So I've got one uh, simple question, and it can't be. Uh, so, what are your favourite rules, and why? I'm gonna have to say, do I have to say Dave Brown? Yeah, you can't, can't say, say Dave Brown. No. No. Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, and the people who know me will 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 say will will know this answer. I'm gonna say Bruce Quarry. Uh, Napoleonic rules, uh, and that is as for that reason that we talked about earlier on. Um, from that nostalgia and those memories of playing the big games with my friends when I was a teenager, um, and the hours of arguing about the national characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> because why are you why are you moving thirty two centimeters and I'm moving twenty eight? 
Well, that's because I'm better. I quite clearly I've got better shoes. Why do the old guard have a better melee factor than cuirassiers? I don't understand. Exactly. But that, <laughs> that was the joy of those rules for me, with the endless yeah. conversations you would have. You'd fight a game <laughs> and then you'd be in the pub afterwards and you'd be mm. going, surely Prussian landwehr weren't that bad. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that, that would be my answer to that question. I very much enjoy it. Great nostalgia. Great. But thank you. Good. So um, I'm just going to say good night to all the uh, listeners. If you want to say good night, Dave. Uh, evening, evening all. all. <laughs> thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> good night. Well, that was a fantastic chat with uh, Dave Brown. We've just. Uh, three hours or so of free wargaming chat with uh, one of the hobby's number one rule writers and uh, we covered loads of stuff there so i do hope you enjoyed our little chat this leaves me to announce the next episode and of course it's going to be episode number 50 which is the golden jubilee of uh, Yorkshire Gamers podcast. Now, on the 25th episode, uh, the Silver Jubilee, I had a lovely chat with a good friend of mine, Stephen Barker, reminiscing about our days as teenagers, uh, getting first getting into wargaming. And for the 50th episode, I have gone special again, and I have got the two fat lardies. Yes, both of them are going to come on the show because they are both the winning and the losing managers of the finalists in the Yorkshire Gamer World Cup of Historical War Games rules. So we're going to have a chat about the madness that was the World Cup and um, a chat about all things two fat lardies. Uh, great to have them on the show. Nick's been on a couple of times before, as you know, but it will be Rich's first time on. So we'll make sure that he gets to uh, deposit something in War Games Room 101. So until next time, which should be a couple of weeks, uh, I'll see thee soon.